I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as ghost, mirrors, planchettes, and directors' bodies of work. All right, so we came off of a uh, very beloved franchise to us last week. Yep. And now we're going into a director. And uh, this one was kind of like a passion project for me. It's Mike Flanagan, which I'm a huge fan of right now. This guy has just been shitting movies out for the past few years and TV shows. Um, the first thing his I saw was Oculus, which to me was like the best horror movie I had seen in like 10 years. Yep. Same for me. First thing his that I saw. And God, I was so happy after all the turds I'd watched on Netflix. <laughs> I mean, it just fucking blew my mind. And then from there, I saw Hush on Netflix and I was like, what's this? Oh, Mike Flanagan made it. I'm going to watch it. And that's pretty much been how his career has gone for me. Um, just about everything he's made is either on Netflix or, or theatrical, of course. But I think all but this first film were all Blumhouse, right? I, I know there's a big Blumhouse involvement. I don't remember which movies specifically, but yes. Back to going all the way back to Slashers. It's like, what do we have now? Who's who's saving our asses? And we've talked about Eli Roth. We've talked about Blumhouse. And now we're going to talk about Flanagan. <laughs> right, right. Um, just give you a little backstory on the guy. He was born in Salem, Massachusetts, which that's kind of got its own little creepy tie in there, right? No, yep. I uh, was making and editing VHS films as a kid, which is very interesting because he edits his own movies and that was kind of his career at first. And that is really like one of his strong parts. So it's funny. He started on that as a child. He was like the theater president in high school. Okay. So he's, he's been into this. He graduated from Townsend university with a film degree and he started his career at, at 21, which they say was at that point in time, that was right when digital film was like just very easily accessible and that makes sense because his first three movies you see on IMDb are 2000, 2001, and 2003. And that was uh, Make Believe, Still Life, and Ghost of Hamilton, none of which are horror. They were all made while in college, as far as I know, or right out of it. And in an interview, he said that they weren't ready for human consumption. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously, just kind of like they, they're on his IMDb. But I, as far as I know, those were college projects to these, make those. But these were his cutting his teeth type movies. Yeah, yeah I, I guess you could say. <laughs> But he graduated and, and after making those three films and moved to L.A. and he became an editor for comedy shows and documentaries and reality shows to some extent. And I think he was cutting commercials and okay. stuff, too. And he really wanted to move to movies. And like so many directors, I'll make a horror movie first. They're cheap and they're easy. And um, he made his first horror movie for a $2,000 budget, and he won several awards at film festivals for it, and that was Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan. And he had written an anthology of Oculus stories, and he felt that 3 was like the one that he could do as a self-contained story. Yeah, it had the meat in it, and he knew he could shoot it and use that to shop. Right, right. So he shot it as a standalone, tried to shop it around and get the movie made, but he was getting a lot of pushback. People were wanting it to be a found footage movie. Yeah, they wanted his movie, but this was the found footage craze. Well, first, his first wall that he hit was he wanted to do the anthology thing. And they yeah. told him no, but he conceded on that. And then the found footage came in and he was like, fuck no, I'm not doing that. And uh, that's what every studio wanted him to do. And he pretty much had to give up on that. And he just went to editing. Like he was still doing commercials and, you know, whatever he could do. He did a Kickstarter video to make his first film. 
It is on YouTube. It is fucking hilarious. I sent it to you. Did you watch it? Yeah, I've seen some of it. <laughs> He's just sitting there all goofy with his girlfriend at the time who ends up being in absentia, talking about how he wants to make a horror film. And it's absentia. He's like, you might know me from these not known college works or these commercials <laughs> that I edited. And he's, you know, he's basically like, just give me money. I want to make a horror movie. And uh, he got, I think it was $15,000 okay. from the Kickstarter, which is all he asked for. He ended up, absentia cost 70000 to make. But uh, it was a very minimalist film, and it was critically acclaimed, and it established him as a horror director. The good news with that, though, is with this newfound fame and, and resume, he was actually able to shop around to get Oculus made. Okay. And that and was what, 2013? Oculus came out in 2013, but they, they shot it in 2012. Um, it was with Intrepid Pictures, and it was with Trevor Macy. Who I want you to remember his name. It's going to come up a whole lot. That was the producer that worked with him at Intrepid. Okay. And that movie actually got a wide theater release, unlike Absentia. And that movie was very successful and received not only monetarily, but horror fans like us, you yeah. know, best horror movie in 10 plus years. And that success let him make Before I Wake in 2015. He cites that as his favorite original screenplay. Yeah. So when I went in to watch that one the first time, I was kind of. I, don't know, I was expecting a little bit more out of it. It wasn't a bad movie, but it was not what I expected out yeah. of it with him saying that. The movie was acquired by Relativity Media, uh, and they went into bankruptcy. So the movie got stuck in like real production hell. Like yeah. it couldn't get put out. Not only that, they kept teasing with release dates all the way up until the point of literally putting posters in theaters. Right. And then pulling it at the last minute because they didn't have the money to release it. And as far as I understand, I think it actually got to come out overseas way before we got it because it was a different company doing it. Yes, the distribution got sold and it did come out elsewhere. (laughs) Meanwhile, this movie just set here. And it eventually came out on Netflix, but not until 2017, which is just insane. But while he was waiting on Before I Wake to get released in 2015, he secretly started working on Hush, which came out in 2016. And he co-wrote that with Kate Siegel, who was his girlfriend at the time. And ended up being his wife. Okay. Um, you'll know her because she's in almost everything he made after a certain point. They showed the film at South by Southwest and uh, Netflix purchased the exclusive rights and, and won it out in 2016. And like I said, I, I was horror movie night at David's house. I saw the poster for Hush. I'm like, what's that? Mike Flanagan. Who's that name again? And then I, I pulled it up on IMDb and I'm like, oh, it's the Oculus guy. We got to watch it. Uh, but that's all I needed. Right. Because uh, <laughs> I didn't see Absentia until this podcast. So yeah, same for me. It was a nice little ride there for him. But in late 2015, he started working on Ouija 2 for Universal Pictures with Blumhouse. And um, once again, Trevor Macy was brought in as the producer who. Oh, OK. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's produced almost everything up to a certain point with him. And uh, it, it was met with critical acclaim and was very successful at the box office. I think it was like 80 million, which, you know, it's a horror movie, so they don't cost yeah. much to make. It's interesting. He does not like sequels and, and Jason Blum had to like basically beg him to do it. And he was like, look, you don't have to like make it an actual sequel. It, it just needs to be like a Ouija two movie. You can do whatever the fuck you want with it. Okay. And that's when he came up with the idea. I'll just do a prequel. So that way I don't have to do anything with the original. And it's basically Moan movie, and it just has a two on the end. Yeah, so you that, know? that way you can say he didn't make a sequel. Right. And then in 2016, so I mean, where did we start here? Um, and he didn't have a theatrical release until 2013. So in three, four short years? 
Yeah, I mean, all these movies coming out. And even then, Absentia wasn't that much before that, you know? Yeah. But in fall of 2016, he began working on the production of Stephen King's Gerald's Game, which came out in 2017 on Netflix. And Stephen King has been quoted saying that there's no way you could ever make a fucking movie out of this thing. Yeah. Just because, like, the horrors are in their mind and it's all in one room for the most part. He fucking did it. Stephen King loved it. And uh, it was also critically acclaimed, right? And he basically, I mean, Stephen King liked it so much that he's now getting to do Dr. Sleep, which comes out this year. And that's the sequel to The Shining, and it's starring Ewan McGregor. Don't know how this can go wrong. So, I mean, he's playing Danny from The Shining growing up, so that'll be pretty cool. But, I mean, I guess 2017 was a busy year for him, because that's when he started directing his first TV show. Like, he already made a leap from film to television to do The Haunting of Hill House, which... Everybody I fucking met has seen on Netflix and loved it and then watched it over and over again to find the creepy fucking faces in the background. Yeah. And we're about to get on like some of his strong points as a director, but it it was really interesting to see that, that build. And he's definitely, to me, he's in that like auteur range because you can definitely tell his movies. Yeah. He uses a lot of the same actors. He has Easter eggs that he puts from within the movies. Yep. He has his 90 degree camera tilt that he does. That's like definitely his thing. And he's really strong on character development. He can develop something for a character with almost no screen time. Yeah. Or without dialogue or, I mean, just all over the place. His editing is fantastic. And I guess it was that background starting editing and the fact that he edits his own work. Yeah. Really good at splicing in multiple timelines or stories together seamlessly. And he's just a very visual director. Like you see that in Absentia. There's things that we're just not going to be able to put into words because you just... It's the camera angle or the lighting or the fucking hidden faces or the hidden monsters that people don't even acknowledge that are there that, I mean, it's that Kubrick shining effect, right? Where yeah. it's like fucking you in the back of the head until you figure out that it's there. Yeah. That, that makes me want to bring up two quick things about him is, is one, like the previous episode, there will be spoilers because it's impossible to tell these movies when we, when we touch on them a little bit um, without getting into the spoilers, but two you can literally, well, almost everyone whose movies watch it once for whatever, and then watch it again and make it a point to watch the background the entire time. Right. Don't watch the characters, just watch the background. Because if you've seen Haunting of Hill House, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the kind of stuff he likes to do. And it's not just in that show. He's got one writer that he's worked with more than once, Jeff something. I Howard, I think, maybe? Something like that. The guy's definitely got his own style. He's got his own approach to directing. So far, like you said, with the camera turn and all this stuff, is he, so he's going to end up being one of them guys that you can just look at how he moves his camera, how he places his actors, how he cuts. It's a Flanagan movie. You saying all that looking in the background, I did that watching Absentia. <laughs> Fucking, <laughs> I enjoyed it so much. I mean, that's what makes an auteur, right? Like, you can put that stamp on it, and you can pick that guy's movie out of a lineup fucking anywhere. Another great thing about him, he is a genre fan. I mean, a lot of horror directors liked horror movies, but, like, they did other things as well. And then started with horror because it was cheap. His his college projects weren't horror, but that's just because I guess they couldn't have been because of, you know, whatever. But this guy, I mean, I saw an interview with him and his wife, Kate, and apparently they just watch horror movies when they're not working on a movie at night, every night at home. Doesn't matter what subgenre it is. Doesn't matter if it's shitty or an awesome movie that yeah. everybody says you got to see. He just fucking watches horror movies. And when he's writing them, he, you know, they try out things like physically and we'll get into that in a little more detail. But like I said, I mean, 
it's 2019 now, but he hasn't had a movie come out this year yet, right? No. So from Absentia was 2011. So it was from 2011 to 2018. He's had six horror movies and a television show. Yeah. And one quick thing I want to say about what sets him apart and what makes this episode really interesting for us, because this is right up your alley, not so much right up my alley. As we keep saying horror, this guy doesn't make blood and guts monster movies. He really, really pulls from story, character, but high tension, good suspense but knows just how much horror to put in there when he does for what it needs. He doesn't overplay it. He's good with the gore dial too. Like Hush was very specific on the gore and the injuries being realistic to fuck with your mind even worse. Yeah. He is very good at figuring out just how much it needs to not be gratuitous. And I'm not just saying just with gore, but just with all of it. Right. Um, It's a really, really neat and it makes for slow pacing. I mean, it just does because there's, there's the build and the payoff. But just it, he has a really neat approach, and there's enough horror to keep me interested. Everybody knows I'm the guy that needs his action beats, his comedy, you know, get me in real quick. But even I can appreciate this kind of art. Right. And and like I said, we, we start with Absentia in 2011. I don't know if anybody in it was necessarily famous except for Doug Jones. Doug Jones. For, you know, doing creature work. He's in the movie. And that's, I don't even know how he got him in there randomly. I don't either. <laughs> Courtney Bell's in the movie, who was his girlfriend at the time, and she's pregnant in the movie with, with his, his child. child. Yeah. So the movie was kickstarted. Like I said, look up that Kickstarter video on YouTube. It's pretty funny. 300 donors to hit his goal. is clearly an independent film with a low budget. Like I said, he was going for that minimalist look anyways. But you could see this being his first film, like his creativity with the imagery and the editing and just like the creepy factor and the character development, like already starting with this first movie. Yeah. The movie follows two sisters. Callie is fresh out of rehab and Trisha who's pregnant and her husband has been missing for seven years. Nope. Callie's in town to help Trisha get ready for the baby and to help her with getting the husband declared legally dead, which I found out is called death in absentia, which is the name of the movie. So that was really interesting to learn. And I'm sure Trisha's kind of wanting to help her sister stay clean too, right? Yeah. Throughout the film, Trisha keeps having horrific nightmares about her husband. And he looks kind of like dead or like a ghost or, or a zombie. And it's always like he just pops up in front of her face when she's sleeping or, or like she sees him like in the house. And yeah. it's supposed to be like, you know, the dread that she's having to declare him dead. And it always happens around something. So there's like a little bit of a guilt factor. Yep. But there's not just those scenes. He's also like randomly in the house and scenes. And it's almost like nobody acknowledges it. Like I know there's this one scene where Callie's like talk about different outfits. Like what should I wear? Or maybe it's even, you know, what should Trisha wear? But she's holding up dresses in front of the closet. And like you see clothes hanging and she holds up a dress and then she puts it down. And then he's just sitting in the closet with his mouth open. Yeah. And then she holds up the next dress, puts it down. and He's not there. And Trisha might have seen it, but like it's not jump scare with a sting no. you know like you just see it in the background you're oh fuck did you see that and it's like the the hill house faces and you definitely feel trisha's dread yeah and she as goes, it goes with this she goes from being shocked and upset by it to like as the movie goes on she starts doing she like meditates and stuff mm-hmm. as she tries to calm down more he shows up more right but she tries to ignore it more but yet yeah, it really does build that up but um kaylee goes jogging uh at some point like pretty early in the movie and she runs through this little tunnel. And the interesting thing, this was Mike's house. They shot at, and the tunnel was across the street yeah. from the house. So, like, he looked at the tunnel, looked at his house, wrote a movie, started a Kickstarter. I mean, like, Pretty much. that's as minimalist as you can fucking get. 
But she she runs through the tunnel and she's on her return trip running by and there's Doug Jones laying on the ground and he's like all wow. I want to say emaciated, but it's Doug Jones. Yeah, motherfucker always, always needs a Big Mac, right? Yeah, he's all um, wadded up on the ground, but he's freaking out. He's like, because she's like, she's like, oh, you know, she's trying to step around <laughs> him, and and he's like, holy shit, you can see me, yeah. And he's like, I'm Walter Lambert, and he he asked her to contact the son or his son. Yep. And uh, she walks around him, and later she comes back with food, right? Like in in a Tupperware container, and leaves it at the end of the empty tunnel because he's not there, thinking she just left him a meal. Okay. Yeah. She later finds a pile of metal objects on the doorstep of her house, and she thinks it's from Walter, and she returns um, them back to the tunnel, Yeah. and there's a guy walking that's like about the same age as her with these bags, garbage bags, and he says, don't leave anything there, right? And she heads home, and then he sets the trash bags down in the same exact spot. She was putting the metal down, so that's kind of odd, you know? But, you know, a couple nights pass by, because you just get bonding with the sisters and them prepping for all of yeah. this. And she finds the metal objects in her bed. Callie does. And they call the police and Detective Mallory comes over. And you start to figure out there's something with him and Trish very quickly. Yeah, it's very obvious. Um, Like he's probably the father of the baby and whatnot. And he's been working on this case for a long time. And he's angry at both the women. Like not in a way that a cop should be. But he's like, I've got to lock the fucking door. Do you know how many animals and things go missing in this neighborhood and people? Right. And he's, he's like, I've been trying to get her to move for years. And Callie's figuring it out. Yeah. And throughout the movie, it's not super obvious, but Callie relapses on drugs. So I think she was like heroin and shit, right? Like yeah. this wasn't like soft drugs. But while that's going on, Trisha finally gets the death certificate signed and decides to go on a date with Mallory. And as this part has been happening, the getting closer to the death certificate date and Mallory showing up more, the Daniel sightings of her husband have escalated yep. like greatly. And they're about to hit like the fucking grand finale on the escalations because since he's now dead, they're going to go on their first date and Mallory picks up Trisha and they're going outside. And what do you see crossing the street coming from the tunnel is Daniel all emaciated and bleeding and disgusting looking all dirty and, he, and shit. Yeah, yeah. And he fucking, he just collapses. Then we, we lapse to a hospital and he's been missing for seven years, obviously. And he's definitely malnourished and bleeding all over. And they say they can find animal bones in his stomach. Yep. And he doesn't remember where he's at. Like, all he'll say is, I was underneath, right? Yep. That's what he says. And it doesn't make any sense. And Mallory's getting pissed because, you know, he's finally about to get his girl. And the husband just poof and appears. Yeah. What? How's that for a cock block? <laughs> right. And uh, Mallory tries to get Trisha to leave Daniel. Like, he's back at the house. I think he's only been home, like, a day. They're waiting on his parents to come in. Yeah. And he's sitting out in the car, like, kissing Trisha and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because she calls the parents, and she's like, I have some news. You just need to come here. Right. Because that's important later. <laughs> and uh, so they're talking in the car, and he's trying to get her to leave, and she's or leave him. Yeah. And she's apprehensive, and they're kissing. But you cut to inside, and Callie's asleep, and she wakes up, and Daniel's just, like, sitting on the head of her bed right by her. And he's talking about, like, the bugs and them trying to get them. Yep. And you shouldn't have traded with them and this, this, and that. And she thinks crazy. And she's like, Trisha, you know, yelling for help. <laughs> and then they hear something skittering through the house. Yeah. And I, I know he had to work with what he had, right, for money. But I wish anything but a bug. But <laughs> there's this bug skittering through the house. And you, you see Daniel get just grabbed and, like, dragged through the house, basically. And then it cuts from outside. This was kind of like a jarring scene. But you see Callie running back towards the house. And they get out of the car. And she's like, He's gone. I couldn't get him. He's gone. Yeah. And of course, you know, they got to do a police report on it. 
Because it shows you you basically understand that he was taken back to the tunnel. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, she's running back from that tunnel. Yeah. And uh, it's really, they're, they're interviewing Kelly because she's the last person to see him. And they're all talking about her eyes, you yeah. know, like her pupils. Because she's using. And she's spouting out crazy shit. Trisha finds her stash, you know, and like they're just fucking completely just ignoring everything she says. Yeah. However, Kelly does research on the internet and she finds out that like over the past hundred years, people have just gone missing near this tunnel. Well, yeah, but it's, and it's even, you know, back before the highway was built in the tunnel there, that it was some kind of a crossing that even yeah. back then that there's all these old stories of people going missing there. And Walter, the guy she saw is one of the missing people. Yep. Um, the next day, coincidentally, cause this, this movie actually kind of goes pretty fast. Uh, Walter's body is found outside the tunnel dead. And, uh, Jamie is seen walking by, which was the guy with the trash bags earlier. And he still has a trash bag and it's full of puppies. And he's like, Oh my God, it's my father. And earlier in the movie, I kind of glossed over it, but you see Trisha hanging missing posters for Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Even that's because it opens with that. Yeah. It's the opening scene. And then she talks about how she's been doing it every day for seven years, but there's missing animal posters everywhere where she did that. So like you start to realize why the animals are missing. It's because Jamie's been taking them. And he's been leaving them at the tunnel, and that explains the animal bones in yep. Daniel's stomach because he's feeding his dad and Daniel and whoever's alive. And, as we say, and whoever else. And there was a trade made there, right? The police are starting to think that he's maybe a serial killer. Yeah, right. So that's kind of like writing this off and putting a bow on it. Yeah, crazy um, dude with puppies in a bag is kind of fucked up. <laughs> we we cut back to their apartment, and uh, Kelly and Trisha are attacked by a giant bug while they're on a the staircase. And the bug grabs Trisha, just fucking drags her, and she's gone. Kelly has to file a police report that her sister's missing, and they don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. And she returns home, and she gets all the evidence, like the the research of all the people missing and yep. stuff like that, puts it in an envelope and writes Mallory on it for Detective Mallory, leaves it on her bed. She goes to the tunnel, and she starts trying to offer her life as trade. Yeah. Take me instead, blah, 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 you know. And, and she's obviously trying to get her sister back. The bug misunderstands her, I guess, and gives the fetus back, thinking that she wanted the fetus. Yeah. And the fetus is dead, obviously. So Callie panics and tries to run out of the tunnel, and you just hear her get yanked and the fucking shoe go flipping out. Yeah. Right? And that was, that was really fucking dark and unexpected for me. Like, I expected her to get taken or killed or something, but I did not expect a dead fetus on the ground. Yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ, Mike, what are you doing? Now, the only thing that fucked with me on that was when she's standing there, and she's like, trade trade my brain immediately went to the freaking south park and the the homeless change change. (laughs) it's a fucked up scene the detectives mallory and his partner uh longer and are going over like the the evidence and stuff and they're trying to figure out what's going on and and his partner's like mallory we'll keep the case open indefinitely if we have to and they definitely think jamie's a serial killer and involved somehow uh mallory chooses that he's going to believe they ran off happily together and that they're taking care of the baby uh, and you get to see Mallory putting up posters. Yep. Just like Trisha was at the beginning. The camera pans back into the tunnel and it's behind Callie, but there's like this like a, almost invisible like layer or wall. So you get that inside or underneath or whatever yeah. feel. And she's looking and he sees her in the distance for a second. And then when it cuts back to her, you see the bug kind of crawl up on her shoulder like it's pulling her back. And the fucking credits roll. Yeah, that, that's it. I mean, that is that movie in a nutshell. There's not so much you can spool on that, I guess, other than the fetus. It's just like, it's just a character development piece 
that just has shocks popping up. Like I said, it, his movie reviews are sometimes going to be short because the imagery of the background or the cinematography is the fucked up escape yeah. part of the movie. And you really have to see it. And this one, luckily, it's on Amazon Prime if somebody has it so they can go back and watch it because this yeah. is probably his hardest to see movie because it did not have a wide release and it was not made by Netflix or Blumhouse. Yeah, and it's also, for me at least, his quote-unquote hardest to watch movie because out of all of them, I'd rank this one at the lowest, but still there's so many inklings of where his mind was and how he wanted to work that right. you see in it. It's just not polished. It's not fleshed out, but it's so different. Right. And I mean, like I said, he made this, he got awards, he got renowned and he was able to make his dream movie Oculus, which came out in 2013. And like I said, I had to go back and watch Absentia for the podcast. I watched this one in the fucking ground. Cause I love this movie. And just to recap, it was planned as an anthology film. Yep. Uh, the short was made first. Studios wanted found footage. And he's like, fuck you. Made Absentia. Now he's cool. And he can make the movie he wanted. <laughs> he's a big Doctor Who fan. Like I said, this guy's a genre nerd. You can see behind the scenes footage of him filming movies in different Doctor Who shirts all the time. Oh, okay. So he, he wanted Karen Gillan as his first choice for Kaylee. And that's just like, he's, that's who I'm getting. Because <laughs> she was from Doctor Who. I guess that was his favorite. Yeah. The movie, just like the short, was very hard to film because of mirrors. Yeah. You got to keep the crew out of it. You got to keep the lighting rigs out of it. You got to keep the fucking camera out of it. But he had learned around that with no budget on yeah. the short film. So now he just kind of used that in a grander way. This is one of those movies. I don't know what it is about talking about movies on this podcast and me seeing them while my wife is like visiting family. But this is one of my watch by myself the first time. Oh, really? Yeah. In this house. And uh, I couldn't look at a mirror the same way for like three days. And that's just, that <laughs> says something to me, right? This movie has two separate timelines that are going on at the same time. And like I said, this is one of his strengths as a director and a writer and his editing background as he seamlessly splices these things together. Like both stories are intercut together as they go and it just bounces back and forth. But for discussion's sake, I think it would be easier if I told the two stories. Why don't you just do what he did? Because I'm not Mike fucking Flanagan, man. You know what he said he did when he was writing the script, right? Yeah, so it was, he was confused. Like, sometimes it would get confusing because all the characters are the same. So they, yeah. the past ones were written in italics. Yeah. And whatever fucking works, dude. <laughs> I mean, clearly it worked, right? Well, I just thought that was really neat that he, he really understood how he wanted to go back and forth between the timelines. So he literally wrote it that way. You doing it like this makes sense, but I want to preface it with there's so many things where it feels right. like there's even time travel involved where you <laughs> feel stuff happening in both places. If you watch it front to back. Yeah. He wanted the audience to be disoriented with the time jumps. Cause there's not even time jumps, but like the story jumps yeah. because they start to mix together a little bit. And he exactly. wanted the, as we dive into the story a little bit, the, the brother and sister Kaylee and Tim are confused and disoriented the entire movie. And he wanted the audience to also be uh, confused and disoriented. So it worked. But story one, as we'll call it, uh, takes place in 2002, where Alan, the father, I think he's like a computer programmer or something, and his wife Marie, which is fucking Starbuck from goddamn Battlestar Galactica, Katie Sackhoff lover. Um, <laughs> but they get a new house with their 10 year old son, Tim, and their 12 year old daughter, Kaylee. Alan gets an antique mirror for his office. And of course, the wife's like, How much did you spend? And, you know, you got to. You got to believe to achieve, right? And get some bullshit fucking excuse. I don't remember what it was. Uh, and uh, this mirror essentially starts making both parents crazy and lose 
sense of reality and hallucinate, right? Yeah. At, over the course of the film, Marie starts seeing like imperfections in her body and like, like, you know, her C-section scars. Yeah. She starts to look like she's rotten away. Alan is being seduced by Kate Siegel. <laughs> yeah. Mike Flanagan's wife. She wasn't his wife yet, but she's like a ghost and she was one of the victims in the mirror. He's like pulling his fingernails off with the staple remover. I know, right? And, and it, it, he'll just, bandage it up and then later on he'll pick at it some more. It's, that's one of those like image things. That's what I'm saying. There's gore like with that and things like that, but it's done like just the right way to make it a little nauseous, you know? Yeah. Both the parents though, they start to become crazy and paranoid and something really neat with the mirror. I don't know if you noticed, but all the paintings in the house are water or reflections of something. Yeah. And then like Marisol, the Kate Siegel's character, her eyes are like a, a mirror reflection. Like all the ghosts have like mirror eyes, which is really kind of cool. <laughs> but you start seeing like plants dying all over the house. The dog starts getting sick yep. and then goes missing. Uh, Marie goes crazy and tries to kill the fucking kids. But luckily Alan was out like golfing or something. So I guess like if you're away from the mirror enough, you get your grasp on reality back. Yeah. So he comes in and, and he like overpowers her and he takes her upstairs to the room and all he tells the kids is that she's not feeling very well and they can't see her right now once she yeah. gets better. And the kids eventually run out of food and they try to get the dad to go get some. And he's basically, he's like, yeah, uh-huh. And he's just staring at the mirror and ignoring Kaylee when, it, when she's talking. Yeah. What does he keep saying? He's like, yeah, that's on my list. Yeah. Or some shit like that. <laughs> I think that's literally what he says. They go to the room to get their mom thinking she'll help them. And she's fucking chained to the wall like a wild animal and like Fingers are all bleeding before she's been clawing and she's missing teeth and shit. And she's literally like attacking them no. like a fucking wild animal. And um, well, she's also, she eats a piece of the plate. Yeah. That from some food she had in there earlier where she just broke the plate and started eating it. So she right. is beyond fucking lost her mind. And the dad gets him out of there and he's angry. You know, he's like, I told you not to go in there. And they go get the neighbor and uh, the neighbor comes over. And he's like, these kids, you know, they're just overreacting. She's not feeling well. And, you know, I like how the camera pans around and his fucking fingers are just all bleeding and missing the fingernails. And the guy can't see it. And the guy's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? Then they decide to call a doctor. And I thought this part was really neat because they call every doctor in town. And it's always the same guy's voice. And he always says, I need to talk to your father. Yep. So, like, they're just fucked. And, you know, they might not even be calling anybody. That's what the mirror does to you, right? But at some point, Alan loses his shit. And he lets Murray out and Katie Sackhoff is, is fantastic at this part. The way she's like crawling around the house and stuff. She's creepy as shit going after the kids. Yeah. But at some point she like gains like her consciousness back and realizes what's going on. And Alan just fucking shoots her and kills, you know, he kills the mom. Yep. Uh, but while that's going on, this is a neat part that gets referenced back. Cause like I said, these, these timelines are interlaced with each other. The kids take golf clubs and go try to smash the mirror. From their perspective, they're beating the mirror, and then the camera pans out. They're beating the wall beside the mirror like they can't hit it. Yep. And Tim ends up with the gun, and he pulls it on his dad. And Alan, first, I don't know what makes you snap back on reality, but Alan realizes what's going on, puts his hand on Tim's hand, and puts the thumb on the trigger, or his trigger finger, tells the kids to run, and pulls the trigger and kills himself. Yep. Bullet pierces his body, though, and hits the lasser glass. It's the name of the mirror, the lasser glass, and it actually cracks part of the mirror. Doesn't shatter it, though. The kids don't take their dad's advice and they don't run. And you start seeing all these ghosts appear, including Marisol with the mirror eyes. The police roll up and, uh, and Tim is arrested for murdering his dad, basically. Right. Yep. And he's institutionalized. I'm guessing Kaylee, I don't know if she went to family or got adopted out, but 
That's where their story ends. And like I said, this is all going on simultaneously. Yeah. And as he's being taken away, he's yelling, it wasn't me. It was the mirror. It yeah. was the mirror. And he can see his parents looking from inside the house yeah, as ghosts the, the mirrors. And Kaylee's yelling, don't forget our promise. We'll destroy this mirror. That's right. And then storyline two that's happening at the same time is in 2013. And Tim is now 21. He's been in uh, like a loony man for like 11 years. And they've convinced him now, like, he actually, his character comes off as very intelligent because of the things they had to teach him to get rid of the supernatural fantasy in his head. Yeah. Like, he has to understand how everything works. Like, the plants did this because of this, and the animals because of this. Yeah, he's grounded. She's crazy. Yeah, pretty much. But he gets released, and he has to stay with his sister and stuff, and it's because his doctor feels like he's uh, he's normal now, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, Kaylee, uh, which is Karen Gillan from Doctor Who, which is fucking fantastic in this, she has spent the past 11 years researching the goddamn mirror, and she knows everyone who's died from it, how they died, this, this, and that, and she's working at an auction house. And like I said, I can't name all the characters that he uses back and forth between his movies. Yeah. But Courtney Bell, who was in Absentia and played Trisha, is the auctioneer yeah. in the movie. And somebody wins the auction. It's not Kaylee. She works there. She's not actually trying to win the auction, and she has to go put it in the back. Well, that's where she sets up this whole thing like she's getting it repaired or cleaned or something, and she's actually stealing the fucking mirror. Yep. Um, it's really kind of fucked up because her brother has been in a loony bin for 11 years and obviously had to deal with some trauma. She could give a fuck. Like, she's like, oh, come on. Remember that mirror? It's real. We're going to deal with this. And, like, he's supposed to be under her care. It's really kind of terrible what she did to him if you think about it from that perspective. True. And it also, there's, a, there's points in the movie where you think the payoff in the movie is going to be that it's all in her mind. Right. And that's what we're we're already seeing down that path that she's so laser focused on this. It can't be real. It has to all be in her head. Jesus, the laser focus. They get to the house. The Tim helps her carry the mirror in. They set up in a room. She's got different cameras set up on different power sources and different types of technology. So they can't be interfered with. She has just like a pile of like kitchen timers and they're all set to, for different things. Yep. And this is a really neat scene, and I've seen the short film. Have you seen it? Yes. And this it, this part is from the short film. Yeah, some of the dialogue is even word for word. Yeah, big and time. Karen Gillan does it very well. Unfortunately, we don't have her awesome Scottish accent. <laughs> She's American in this. But she goes through the history of the mirror and explaining, you know, this person died of dehydration in a bathtub. This person weighed 300 pounds and died of malnourishment. This, this, and that. And he Tim's trying to explain and write everything off. Meanwhile, yeah. the timers are going off and you find out that like this timers to drink water, this timers to eat food because the mirror will make you forget to eat and drink so that you'll die. This timer is to not or to, to turn off this kill switch. What kill switch might you add? She has a giant fucking anvil thing that'll come down and smash the mirror yeah. if she's not alive to do the fucking timer. It is so well thought out. It is insane. I can just imagine like fucking Mike writing all this shit out when I heard how he made hush and stuff like in, in seeing his process. But she also has her fiance who worked at the auction house set to call her every like hour or something yep. to make sure her brother hasn't gone crazy and killed her or something. That's what he thinks, but it's actually to check in on him, right? And send to the police. But as they're talking, Tim's just, he, he's not having it. He's not believing it. The plants start actually wilting and he's noticing that she has a dog named dog that she has in front of the mirror and it starts acting a little wonky. Uh, Tim keeps arguing and then they realize that the cameras are all facing each other and stuff like that. And you can't see anything. 
and they go back and rewind the footage and they see where they're talking and they do it. And that's when you know it's not in her head. Yeah. And this is one of those times I got to interrupt you for a second where you said the what this guy does in his movies, it's very visual. It is so hard to do this movie justice, like in a scene like that, to where they're literally arguing about how nothing's going wrong and this is all stupid. And then they see the footage and they're literally having the conversation while moving the cameras the way like the plants when they argue about the plants and how they're not close enough and all that stuff. It's really, really good how it shows how they're being fucked with with no tells. Right. And that means anything's possible. And it's really fucking creepy. They do it really fucking good. <laughs> and she eventually gets Tim on board and they're walking around. I guess they got to change light bulbs on the house. I normally, I'm not going scene by scene, but I want to talk about this scene. She's got the light bulbs and she's changing them. They'll change it. And as soon as they put it yeah. in, it blows. And there's plants dying all over the house. And she's eating an apple because the apple timer went off. And then you see her eat the fucking light bulb by accident and have to pull the glass out. And it's pretty fucked up. And then you realize that she didn't eat the light bulb. It was the apple. So yeah. they're really fucking and I me. And I really love that scene because there's so there's so much buildup to you know what's going to happen because she's eating the apple and sets the apple down next to the light bulb. Changes right. the light bulb, sets the light bulb down next to the apple. Like I'm the guy that's sitting there going, this is fucking million miles away. Just hurry up and bite the fucking light bulb. Right. And then when she does, you're like, yeah, let's move on. And then you realize that she didn't. Right. It's like, no, motherfucker, you don't know what to trust anymore. Let's <laughs> and, keep going. It's even a step further. That scene was in the trailer. So like when she's walking with the apple and the light bulb, I'm like, here it is. Let's do it. And even then it fucked me, you know, uh, but she, she makes it past the whole light bulb scene. And then she sees her dead mother or mother who should be dead in the house who attacks her. And she takes like a broken plate or pot or something and stabs her in the neck. Yeah. Well, then she realizes it's her fiance yep. and not her mom. But then she's like, oh, you're fucking with me, Mira. I know it's, you know, I know it's something else. And Tim shows up, and then I like how she uses her camera. And she, like, looks at the phone camera. Yeah. And realizes that it's her fiancé dead and not not her mom or whatever the fuck she Yeah, because that's how she realized that what she thought was a broken plate or something wasn't real because she looked at it through the camera. And that's why she was so sure when she was down there. She's like, it's not real. It's not real. And that was the payoff for the whole long bit with right. the apple was what was going to happen here. And when she tells Tim, she's like, there's no way I killed him because I didn't have a plate to stab him with. And that's when you figure out it's a piece of pottery. Yep. Right? Um, from like a planner or something. Um, they decide to uh, call the police, but it's the same voice from when they were kids calling the doctor, right? Yep. And they can't get it. There's a couple of times they try to leave the house and then they, they're in the yard and like, we got out. And then they look and they see themselves standing in front of the mirror, wait on the anvil to get them. So it's just so fucked. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard to describe. And I think when they're on the call, the the voice keeps saying, have your father call, have your father yeah. call or something like that. Which is what, what exactly. the doctor said. Yeah. At this point, though, like in the movie, like I said, I'm telling them as two separate stories, but they were interlaced. They blend together at this point. Like yeah. the adult Kaylee and Tim are interacting with the kid Kaylee and Tim. They're seeing the mom and dad. They're reliving that night. The whole night that the shit went down. And it's and that's that's why I was saying kind of earlier on, because you end up with one part where uh, Kaylee's holding her brother's hand near the just outside of the study where the, the mirror is. And she says something to him and turns and looks at him and she's holding her her brother from the past, right? his hand. And you, your mind starts racing back and forth with what did I see at the beginning of the movie? Right. How was this, were the young ones interacting with the older selves? And it starts jumping back and forth, like shot by shot, right. scene by scene, so fucking fast. And you can see why italics were needed in the fucking yeah. script. But basically little Kaylee sees her mom in the mirror and she goes to hug. But then it cuts to grown him. 
and he pulls the kill switch on the mirror, thinks he smashed the mirror, and then he realized that he just fucking drove a spike through his grown sister's head into the mirror and killed her. Yeah, and it's fucked up, too, because it's almost like a weird spiky boat anchor looking thing. Yeah. And there's a gap in between the two points. So, you know, when it the way it hit her, it literally just cut her neck on both sides, only leaving her like spine. Yeah. And she's just up against it. Twitch it. <laughs> it's a great payoff. It's so sad and so neat at the same time. I hate to keep saying it, but goddamn the imagery in a Mike Flanagan movie. Yeah, I um, really like this movie. But the police show up. I don't know from... Maybe one of the fake phone calls, maybe the fiance called. I don't know exactly how they get there. They arrive and Tim is blamed again. They think that he got out of the loony bin, went right off his rocker and murdered his sister. Yep. And they're actually watching the camera footage and they see the footage of his sister, like standing in front of the mirror and him run over and hit the kill switch. So it just straight up looks like he fucking murdered her. He's getting, you know, they cuff him, throw him in the car. It's driving off. And uh, he sees his sister's ghost now with the mirror eyes with his family in the house. Yep. And and the fucking credits roll. I mean. Well, and he's yelling in the squad car again. It wasn't me. It was the mirror. Yeah, just like it was a kid. Yeah. And um, I mean, fuck. If if Mike wanted the timelines to interweave to confuse you or. Yeah, actually, it wasn't to confuse you. That's the thing. It's not confusing. It makes sense. It disorients you. It disorients you. But it also makes you start thinking back to earlier in the movie. And you right about the time you think you understand what's happening. The kill switch happens. Right. And it's like. Fuck. And the movie, the ride is very fast. Like, it's just like it, the pacing is perfect. Like, it yes. doesn't feel too fast. I can't think of any dead spots or slow spots. It just goes nope. and it's over. And I'm like, well, I guess I could watch it again. You know, like yeah. right now, like it, I'm ready to it restart slowly it. slowly starts stepping up. And that's the fun thing is it just keeps going on and on and on and on. It's, it's, it just builds all the way through. There's no, no dead. I, I really like this. Movie. I mean, I'm, to me, it's, it's my favorite movie of his. Yeah. Even and, though it's not the slasher. And like you said, not knowing about it and just seeing it kind of out of nowhere is like, this is yes. Just, we have new horror. I'm happy now. Could you imagine if you had seen Absentia first and you were seeing this movie just because it was his, that's quite a fucking leap. Right, right. You're like, oh, that's the guy that made Absentia. I love that movie. It was like a really nice minimalist artsy piece. And then you watch it and you're like, what the fuck? It's a full horror movie. Yeah. I wish I could have experienced it that way. Yeah. And we've brought up the short a couple of times. Just want to reinforce this. Anybody who's listening who hasn't seen the short, the short is actually really good. Yeah. And it's fun if you've seen the movie to then go watch the short and see how much was actually pulled from that. The dialogue, the setup, the mirror. Right. Um, it's just interesting how this guy's name, though, can draw you into a movie like it did for me on the next film, Hush, that came out in 2016. Like I said, I saw like a mask and I'm like, oh, it's a slasher movie. And the poster's actually kind of cheesy because Kate Siegel's a good actress. But you see this picture of her next to the slasher mask making a terrible scared face, really kind of jarring, right? Because yeah, the I almost, her, almost recognized her, but then the face is kind of cheesy. But it's not when you see it in the movie. It's like the f- expression of a mute and deaf girl finding something out, right? Yeah, the way her, her eyes are cut in that picture is part of what makes it so weird because it's like a boo yeah. kind of scared face. This movie, like I said, I saw it on there. I saw the slasher mask. Mike Flanagan, I know that name. Look it up. Oculus guy, got to watch it. He made a slasher movie sold. And and this movie, it has a very small cast. You got John Gallagher Jr. as the man. He's the, that's what he's called. However, I want to say, sorry, guys, I called him the hunter in slasher sport. It's the man. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> um, he's fantastic in it. He is the, he's a human slasher. You don't get those a whole lot. 
and he's very smart on how he plans everything out and how he tries to get away with it and how he interacts with things. Yeah. And he's really dark and he's got some good one-liners that I'm going to get into. You got Maddie, which is Kate Siegel, who not only did she star in this film, she also co-wrote it yeah. with Mike. Uh, Sarah is her neighbor. And then her boyfriend is John, who's Michael Truco. He was in like Battlestar Galactica and a bunch of other shit. And her sister Max kind of pops in for just a second on a phone call, but she's not a main character. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. They wrote it before they were married, but they lived together, Kate and Mike. And as they were writing the movie, he would go outside of the house and try to break in different ways. Yeah. And then they would act it out like the end of the house. And no, that's not going to work. Or, oh, we'll change this. And we'll try it that way. And what they realized is every time he actually got into the house, it went downhill from there. There's like not enough room. There was nowhere for Kate to go. He'd catch her every time. So they were like, when we make this movie, we have to keep the killer outside of the house as long as fucking possible to make this work. Yep. They shot the film in 18 days from sundown to sunrise, six days a week, which has to be fucking miserable. (laughs) And here's the interesting thing. They shot the movie in 100% chronological order. So normally, you know, you'll go and you'll shoot this scene and this scene and you try to keep everything together. Start the way you watch it. The movie was filmed in real time. And I think he said the director's cut versus what got released on Netflix was like a three minute difference. Yeah, there's no nothing major missing, and it it played into the idea of insomnia, sleep deprivation, getting tired, getting frustrated, and her character going through that throughout the movie of her literally feeling that way, and it sells it. Speaking of her character, there are 15 minutes of dialogue <laughs> in this movie, and I I like her as a final girl. I feel for her character. She can't fucking talk. Yeah, like we get that without her talking. And he's a he's a, like I said, he's a fan. He's a big Stephen King fan. That's how he ended up making Gerald's game. Maddie's book collection in the house is Stephen King books. Yeah. Right. Like he did that on purpose. Stephen King actually loved this movie and he ranked it equal with Halloween as a slasher film. OK. Hey, Stephen fucking King. Say what he wants. Right. It is a similar idea to Wait Until Dark, which came out in 67 starring Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. But she's blind and not deaf and mute and that. And and it's three people in the house. But I even saw an interview where Kate Siegel said that definitely gave them the idea. They at least admitted that, right? Okay. I mean, it's not a ripoff by any means. It's just woman in house with disability. And it starts off, I mean, it is a home invasion slasher movie, but like the home invasion part, I feel like drops quick once the killer gets to the door and she realizes he's there. Yeah. And you, you get your slasher movie. I get my slasher movie. Let's be honest here. <laughs> uh, they wanted to aim for realism on the injuries. Cause Mike hates it. How like somebody gets stabbed in the heart and they just fucking die in a movie. And he's like, it is a slow and painful way to die. Yep. You're getting stabbed in the carotid artery. It takes a couple minutes to die and it's excruciating. And you know, without having like intestines or everywhere, they just want like a little bit of blood, but the gore to still be graphic yeah. um, because of that. And um, I feel like it worked. Like yeah. with their injuries, they get some pretty horrific fucking injuries in this movie. The whole idea stemmed from Mike wanting to make a movie that didn't have any dialogue in it. But what? he, he fucking artsy dude, man. He felt like horror fans wouldn't have got like the silent movie vibe, you know, because it was just so much in the past and yeah. not even really referenced. But to get in the movie, our, our star Kate Siegel plays Maddie Young. She is an author. She already has one book out, I believe, Midnight Mass. Yep. And uh, remember she, that name? <laughs> it's going to come back up. She's deaf and mute, and it. she wasn't born that way. She had, like, a bacterial infection, yep. a bacterial meningitis. There was, like, a surgery that went wrong, and that caused her to be deaf and mute. But she, she's, like I said, she's an established author. She moved out to this house that's not just completely away from nothing. The neighbors aren't that far away, but it's an isolated house. Yeah. And she's 
got a little bit of writer's block and she's trying to get over her boyfriend and her breaking up and come up with the ending of her book. And this comes into play a couple times in the movie because she's working on the book and it's neat because she has like different drafts of it. That's ending one through seven and she just keeps popping the endings. But when she does it, you see like a, her face cut in and she's actually talking. Like you can hear her working the endings out in her head, like yeah. real fast and talking and, and just kind of gets you in on her train of thought. We meet her friend, Sarah, who walks up talking about the book Midnight Mass and has it in her hands. So we can see what the cover looks like. Yep. And she's trying to, she lives next door, which is a little ways away, but it's still the neighbor. <laughs> and she's trying to talk to her in ASL, American Sign Language. And uh, she messed up some words and they have a little conversation. And before this happened, you saw Maddie prepping dinner. Yeah. And uh, you hear the most god-awful fucking destroy your life fire alarm go off. And they freak out. And it's because she left the roast in the oven or something that's smoking. And she explains that it has to be loud enough that she can feel it asleep to wake up. Yeah. Feel yeah. the vibrations from the, the sound <laughs> and, pressure. Um, Sarah ends up heading home for the night. And uh, we see Maddie start cleaning up for dinner. While she's cleaning... Sarah comes running up on the porch, fucking bloody, beaten on the sliding glass door with no response from Maddie. Yeah. Because she's not looking and she's, you know, she's deaf, obviously. The killer runs up and stabs her to death, but he realizes that Maddie doesn't know what's going on. So he starts like tapping on the door with his finger, tapping on it with his knife, and he starts fucking beating on the door. Yeah. And he gets a little, it's not a Myers head tilt, but he gets, you can tell his body's intrigued. And the mask, I think, is a pretty creepy slasher mask and original. It's just like a really blank, expressionless, almost like a Myers mask. Yeah. A little bit more to it. And you can tell that he he wants to have fun with this when he drags Sarah's body away so that she can't see it. But basically, Maddie starts talking to her sister, Max, I think her name is, on mm-hmm. FaceTime. So that way they can use sign language to communicate. Yeah. And you see the killer sneak in in the background from our point of view. Yeah. And grab Maddie's iPhone. And you hear Max say, what was that? He's like, oh, the cat. Right. So it gets kind of played off. And uh, she gets off of the call with Max and she starts getting iMessaged photos from inside her house looking at her because the man, as he's referred to, is snapping pictures of her and sending them to her. But she figures out like one of them's the closet behind her, turns around and the front door is open. So he's already gone because there's a delay on sending the pictures. But she freaks out and, you know, gets up and starts locking the doors. And she sees a man standing out on her lawn, right, with the mask. And he's just uh, strutting around the house, going to different doors and different windows. And she's just running and locking them. And it's, it's like a cat and mouse game, but he's not like erratically running around or anything. Yeah. She tries to use FaceTime. I don't know if it's call her sister to call 911 or if there's a way you can call 911 that way. But he immediately cuts the power. And then she's trying to connect to, I think, Sarah's Wi-Fi. But it's like just out of range. And then he's at the door knocking on it with the mask and, and the beanie on and everything. Yeah. And Maddie takes her lipstick out of her purse. And this is, there's so many lines that I want to do in this movie because they're good. She writes (laughs) in the glass, won't tell, didn't see face, boyfriend coming home. The man then takes his mask off. And this pretty much breaks every slasher movie. We're like, what, 20, 30 minutes in? Killer took his fucking mask off. Yeah. There's no figuring out who it is. And she's fucked. Her whole thing is, you don't have to kill me. I can't tell on you. Now you've seen my face, right? And, um. He's like, can you read lips? And she's like, yeah. And, you know, nodding her head. And he says, then you've seen it now, haven't you? <laughs> and uh, he ta- starts taunting her with lines because he looks at where it says boyfriend about what her sister said about her being broken up and living all alone. Yeah. So she knows she's fucked. And, and this is some of my favorite dialogue of his. He says, I can come in anytime I want. I can get you anytime I want, but I'm not going to. Not until it's time. When you wish you were dead, that's when I'll come inside. Do you understand me? It's so fucking dark and creepy. And uh, 
And he keeps saying, do you understand? And he starts nodding yes. And he's like, good. Then we can have some fun. So enjoy it. <laughs> it's so fucking dark. I want to see this guy. I mean, I know he's in other stuff, but like I, I need to check out some more of his work. It's like, it's like coming from the Freddy Krueger point of view of things as a killer. It, but it's like, it's very, it wasn't even funny. <laughs> like this is when, when you watch like Mindhunter or like, Invention, investigation discovery something that's like what you expect a serial killer to think and say well yeah but that's what I was getting as that he's reveling in what he's about to be able to do right in the situation he's in but uh, she arms herself as like some basic household shit like I think it was a kitchen knife at some point she has like wall spray and, and yeah. all, all sorts of stuff and he's patrolling the house and she's like or she's patrolling the house and she's looking around because she can't hear she doesn't know where he's coming from and yeah. the fucking dread from that but she's running around the house trying to hide and she ends up in some room by a window <laughs> and you see this fucking bloody hand come up like it's a marionette hand, like marionette puppet beating on the window. The camera pans around and the killer's out there holding Sarah's corpse, yeah. knocking, knocking on the window and smiling at her. And, uh, you know, she runs off freaking out and she tries to use her car alarm to distract him because, oh, I forgot when he was like patrolling her house after they had the conversation, he took the mask off. He stabbed all her tires out. So even if she yeah, gets yeah, to her yeah. car, it has no tires. But he goes in the, you know, into the car and, and kills the alarm. But while he's doing that, she hangs out to try to see if she can find Sarah's phone. Right. And he comes around really quick and uh, she slams the door in his hand. Right. And, and he starts trying to like fight her and pull the window back up because he's in a little bit of pain. She grabs the coal hammer and she fucking sticks him in the arm with it. Yeah. And he screams and yanks her arm out. And she gets the window shut and he's bleeding. And he looks at her with like some admiration. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah. Good move. Tears off part of Sarah's shirt and makes a tourniquet so he won't bleed out. And then he shows her that he has her phone. Yeah. Like I already had Sarah's phone. Then he takes an earring as a souvenir and puts it in his pocket. Yeah, that's right. But basically, Maddie keeps trying to get out of the house uh, different ways. And he's always patrolling, right? Like yeah. He's good at his job. She sneaks up on the roof. And he sees her and he shoots her in the leg with a crossbow. Yeah. Right. So she's got the bolt in her leg. Then he starts trying to climb up the, the fucking rose growing things that I never can remember the name. Trellis. Trellis. This <laughs> is like an ongoing thing now that I can't remember this word. I should have wrote the goddamn word down. But uh, he climbs up. She kicks him in the face, basically, right? And he falls and drops the crossbow. So she yeah. has his crossbow, climbs in the attic, locks the window, pulls the bolt out of her leg, makes a tourniquet, and there's uh, notches carved in the the butt of the crossbow so it's like all of his victims and i don't i should have counted them but there's a decent number on there <laughs> and she keeps trying to load the fucking crossbow and she's hurting herself and can't i've never loaded a crossbow but i hear it's kind of difficult yeah i've got a crossbow that's only 150 pound draw draw weight that's barely enough for small game and i have to use a pulley assist okay thing with it as a full-grown man to comfortably cock it they are <laughs> a bear to cock okay um but at this point, like while she's trying to get this thing ready and not bleed out, Sarah's boyfriend, John, shows up and he's looking for Sarah. He's beating on the door. Sarah, Sarah. And this is so clever. You just never see this in like a slasher movie, I guess, because sometimes they're like Freddie or Jason or Mikey and they don't talk really or Freddie's case, he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. But he runs around holding the flashlight and he's like, freeze, put your hands up. And he acts like he's a cop. And John's confused and he sets his phone down on the ground. This, this, this and that. And he tells a story about his police. He's a sheriff's deputy. Uh, he's new. They received a call about something at the house. He showed up and a, and a large man, he's like a big linebacker looking guy like you came through and hit me and knocked me out. Yeah. And I really should have called for backup before, you know, before I got out of the car, but I'm new and I wanted to, you know, be the hero. Can I use your phone? 
and then he fake calls for backup. Yep. And then he pockets John's phone, hoping he won't notice. And John's like, can I have my phone back? And he starts asking him questions. Well, when, when the man pulls the phone out of his pocket, Sarah's earring hits the ground and John sees it. Yeah. And he starts like trying to pick holes of the story. And then he's like, by the way, um, I think Maddie keeps a spare key under that planner over there. And he goes to check out of the planner and John has this big rock and he's trying to smash. He's going to go smash his head in. Yeah. But then Maddie starts beating on the sliding glass door and uh, John turns to look and he just, the man just sticks him in the carotid artery with a fucking, with a knife and he just starts bleeding out really fast. Yeah. He's like, you're just so damn big. I didn't stand a chance if we had a fight. And he looks at Matt and he's like, thank you. You know, yep. and then John. Like, see this? This is your fault. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's such an ass. And then John actually tackles him. Because like, like I said, Mike said, you bleed out slowly. Exactly. And he uses the last of his strength to just put him in a chokehold and lay under him. And Maddie's looking and he mouths run to yep. her. And she tries to run. And this is a really fucking cool part of the movie because she makes a run for it. Gets tackled by the man, and he fucking smashes her face in with a rock. The end. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, we see her start playing through several endings in her head, yep. just like the beginning when she's writing her book. She runs up this way, and it's funny because her face pops up, and it's like imposed next to her. And uh, and she, you can hear her voice, and she's talking. She's like, you're going to bleed out if you don't, you know. Do this. You only have so many minutes. If you got the front door, he's going to do this to you. If you got to the roof, he's going to do this. And she starts going through all these things, and she's dying in all of them. Uh, she's like, you're going to die if you stay. You're going to die if you run. So your only option is to kill him, right? And um, I just want to point out real quick, the whole idea of her internal monologue being another character of herself speaking with herself is very, very interesting that he was already playing with that when we get to another movie later. Right. And once again, character development, character development, character development. Yep. But I just remember he like sees her. Trying to load the crossbow at some point through a window. He's like, yeah. it's not easy, is it? John ends up dying. He bleeds yeah. out and he finds his cigarettes and he's like, these things will kill you, John. And yeah. he's smoking a cigarette and he picks up the cat like he's about to kill the cat. He takes a crossbow bolt to the shoulder, screams in pain and gets up and starts chasing Maddie. And she's like in the front yard. So she runs into the house, through the sliding glass door and drops the bolts. So she dives backwards through her hand through the threshold of the door to grab the bolts and he fucking slams it on her arm and her mouth opening, but she can't scream. Yeah. And he stomps the shit out of her fingers and he mangles the fuck out of them. Yeah. And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty fucked up and graphic. He says that he can come in, you know, whenever he wants or whatever. So she writes, do it, coward, with her own blood on the, on the wall or on the sliding glass door. Yeah. And takes off running in the house. So he goes and gets the tire iron he got out of John's car, or maybe it was her car, somebody's car. And he starts trying to smash the glass. And this is some badass security glass because you can see it's like moving and cracking a little bit. But that shit is not caving in. And he's going to find another way in the house. And I love this part. She runs to her laptop and types a description of his height, his eyes, the tattoo on his neck. I love you, mom and dad. I died fighting. Yeah. And that part to me was just like spoke volumes. She runs into her bathroom and she's hiding in front of the bathtub. And I actually had to rewind it the first time I watched the movie. I was confused as what happened here. But he breaks to the skylight in her bathroom, but we get it from Maddie's perspective, so there's no sound. So you almost see like magic pixie dust falling behind her, but it's glass in slow motion. Okay. And he lands in the bathtub, and he starts talking shit, and he's like, oh, I bet I bet I could make you scream if I got you in the right spot. And he laughs, and she feels the, the breath on the back of her neck. Yep. And the... Um, 
the choreography on the way she spins with the knife the same time he stabs this knife and she gets them was really cool how they did it and yeah. nice use of uh slow mo yeah because it's 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 a perfect move where the direction she goes saves her yeah and fucks him without her seeing any of it yeah but she takes off running because she needs to get another kitchen knife because the one she had is now in him <laughs> and she sees the kitchen knives in her kitchen and she starts getting dizzy from loss of blood and collapses yep and um he comes limping in there and he sees her and he's trying to strangle her to death. And right as he dives at her, she turns on the fire alarm. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, it's the sound of God booming in <laughs> and he's trying to strangle her. And you can tell he's in like so much discomfort because it's so loud and she's, you can hear her heartbeat slowing down. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just insanely loud. It's also got a, it's a horn strobe. So it's got a strobe on yeah. it too. So it's disorienting the fuck out of him as well. And he also, he got maced with wall spray. She's like yes. maces him, sets off the fire alarm. He tackles her. Cause she still he's can't really run a bad time yeah. now <laughs> and he's strangling the fuck out of her and you can hear her heartbeat slowing down. And she's about to die and she gets a corkscrew and just fucking rams it straight into his neck. Yep. And he's pretty much done for at that yeah, point. I think you can see it even go in one side of his throat and poke out the other. <laughs> and he falls over. She takes a cell phone, dials nine one one. And I guess just throws it on the ground. Right. Cause they'll come. And, uh, she walks outside, waits on the porch and her cat walks up and she gives this eerie smile at the camera right before the credits roll. And I have a couple of theories and I looked online and other people share them. So she had a botched throat surgery that caused the deafness and the muteness. Yeah. What if him strangling her fixed it and she could hear the sirens pulling up or the cat meow next to her? And that's why she smiled or did she smile because she found her ending? I figured she smiled because she found her ending, but out here's what'll really bake your noodle. <laughs> what the fuck? There are noodles involved. It's a matrix reference. Okay. Um, do you get to read any of where she's at in her book when she's pissed off and typing that she can't figure out the ending? Do you get to read any of that? You can read some of it. It's an actual excerpt from an actual book that Mike Flanagan is working on for the past few years and hasn't been able to finish. Okay. Because I didn't know if there was any more tie-in into how much of this did we just see that was really real or how much of it was in her head while she's writing a book. I think all of it was real. Or was I? That's what I got out of it. But like, because like I said, the book itself is an actual book that Mike Flanagan can't seem to finish that he's writing himself. <laughs> and he actually had the book. Okay. Like that was the file she had open. It was his real book. Gotcha. It's just, it's weird because the music's playing and you hear the sirens and they do this weird sound effect as the camera pans around to her when she smiles, almost like it was like, oh, that's me hearing it. I'm going to have to watch that ending again. It's reaching for it a little bit, but they did some effect on the audio for a reason, I feel. I got you. But it, it most likely is she finally found her ending. I mean, I praise this movie during Slashers. I think it's fun, right? Every <laughs> time I watch it, I like it more and more. Sadistically enough, it's because of the killer. Like, John yeah. Gallagher Jr. is fantastic in this fucking movie. Um, there's some Easter eggs with it in other movies. I'll, I'm going to do all that at the end. We'll yeah, play a little yeah. game. One really interesting thing that I want to cover before we hand it over to Josh for the last three Flanagan films is he wants to take the four principal cast members, uh, John Gallagher, Jr., Kate Siegel, John Truco, and, oh, I can't think of her name right now, but Sarah. Yeah. And in between big movies, every couple of years, make another small movie with just those four people. And they were all really good at this movie for only having four people in their dialogue. Yeah. Right. Like they carried the story and I think it would be interesting to see that, but I think he's gotten so big now. He doesn't have dead time. Yeah. He's not going to have time to do that. Shit. <laughs> Cause I mean, he's just fucking big movies now. And then he's got the TV show he's got to do. Yep. Plus the, well, I'll save the other thing for the end that he's working on. <laughs> but, uh, that was, I mean, 2016 was a busy year for this motherfucker. Cause then he got to start on his next movie. But we're now going to move into before I wake. 
2016, even though it was actually made in 2014 and into 2015. We talked about what happened with the movie getting shelved. But regardless of the order of the movies, this guy stayed busy. So in the film, we've got Jesse, Mark, Cody, Natalie, and Andrea. I guess I can go through this in a bit more detail because you talked about how, you know, these guys' movies seeing stuff. Yeah. You know, being very visual and character development. And there's a whole lot of that in this movie. But we open up with a random guy sobbing, going into a child's bedroom and pointing a gun at him. Right. So this is very, very interesting. I believe that the door slams or flies open and the shadow moves and he shoots at it. And he looks back at the kid and he keeps crying and he drops the gun. He can't do it. Right. And uh, I believe you see a monster charge in the hallway. And then when it slams the door, something the kid wakes up and it's just gone. Yeah. And uh, so Cody's the kid. So Cody is adopted by Jesse and Mark. And uh, we see them taking down pictures where that all have a child in them. Right. Um, except for one family portrait. That's the one that they leave. And uh, Cody gets brought into the house and he sees the picture. And actually he comes in. He's a real well-behaved kid. Yeah. Because I think when he comes in, he takes off his shoes and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, shoes bring in dirt. Yeah. Something and, like that. Uh, and he's got this box. That he doesn't want anybody to see that's like his thing. And he finally hands it over to Mark. And uh, I don't even think he opens it. He just like appreciates that he did. Yeah. Something interesting about this movie. This is bigger actors than Mike normally has in a movie. Yeah. You got Kate Bosworth, Thomas yeah. Jane, and uh, I mean, Annabeth Gish. Like They're all pretty big actors or, yeah. or have been at some point before this movie was made. So it's interesting to see him not working with friends and family or his wife, you know, with an occasional actor there from a TV show. Yeah. Like Trico or Gillen, you know, when he had him in. But uh, we find out that Cody is really into butterflies mm-hmm. and, uh, and even collects them. And uh, Jesse ends up finding that the box has got like Cokes and sugary snacks <laughs> and fucking like caffeine pills and shit. And uh, she's asking, why do you have all this? And uh, he Cause doesn't see Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't like to sleep because of canker man. Right. And Canker Man is this man that comes in his dreams and eats people. <laughs> cool. So this is the kind of movie we're going to have. This is uh, this is what I'm going to watch for the podcast. I'm like, what the fuck's a Canker Man? <laughs> I know, right? And uh, so that night, um, Mark and Jesse are sitting in the living room and all of a sudden start seeing all these butterflies. Oh, yeah. And uh, mix in with the butterflies is this one moth that lands on Jesse's hand and actually bites her. And uh, if you look real close, you'll notice the, uh, the butterflies don't have antenna either. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Ooh, I didn't catch that. I know where you're going with that though. Yeah. And, uh, they realize they all disappear and they even catch one in a cup. Right. And they all disappear and they realize that Cody's awake mm-hmm. and, uh, they, just, they vanish and he just comes walking in the room. Yeah, right. And this, you put two and two together real fast in this movie and, uh, visual and, and character development, right. And that's what we're going with. Here. Yep. So, uh, they end up, uh, I don't remember if Cody asked, but they end up telling Cody that Sean went to heaven. Mm -hmm. That's why he's not around anymore. And he, I think he even talks about that's where his mom went. Yeah. Or something like that. And, uh, he, uh, we end up seeing him at school and he's got this drawing that he's done of a butterfly and this little girl sitting next to him is like, aren't they supposed to have antenna and reaches over and now the butterfly has antenna. And, uh, real quick, what ends up happening is, uh, Sean comes back. Real, real quickly, like the next night in yeah. his dream, but he's mute. He just looks like he does in the picture. It is so like as a parent, this shit was fucked because they're sitting there 
They're watching TV. The butterflies come. They think it's cool again. Yeah. They're trying to figure it out. And then in walks their son dressed like he is in one of the pictures. And I don't, I'm, sh- I don't know what the fuck grief does to you. If, if one of my children randomly died horrifically, I'm sure I'd be fucked up, but they are so cool and open with it yeah. that I have to suspend belief a little well, bit. Well, Mark is kind of like, yep, that's a thing, and, <laughs> but he doesn't want to give it any energy. Right. And Jesse's like, cause they show her, she's been going to support groups and Mark hasn't been going and she's really having trouble dealing with this. And she's like, oh my God, this is, he can, he can dream stuff into reality. Right. And so she does this really dick move of making him watch a DVD of Sean opening Christmas presents. Yeah. Cause she specifically says he couldn't talk. Uh-huh. So she wants him to hear the voice. Yep. And then next night we get the really cool light up butterflies and the Christmas trees there. And then there's Sean. I just remember when she did that, I said, fuck the canker man. She's the real monster of this movie. Exactly. It's really fucked up what she's doing to that kid. But, uh, He's standing there by the Christmas tree with this big box. And uh, no, that's later in the movie. Sorry. Um, we see all the butterflies go down the hallway. Mm-hmm. And there's these two lights mixed in with the butterflies that all of a sudden pop up about where eyeballs would. Mm-hmm. Butterflies all come together and we see the creature that is the canker man. Right. And he goes into Cody's room, crawls up on the bed and whispers in his ear, I am always with you. Right. And it's like really creepy. And it was pretty some- creepy. <laughs> and... Uh, Something we'll get into, like I joked about earlier, that Mike Flanagan has a thing about eyes and whispers. And in these next two movies, you really (laughs) see that. So real quick, for anybody that hasn't figured it out, like, okay, the kid dream shit, it comes into reality. Only problem is, is the kid's nightmares apparently come into reality too. And there's this monster that's fucking after him. Right. Well, the next day at school, there's this bully kid that knocks his butterfly in a jar out of his hands and it shatters. And uh, he ends up pushing him down. Yeah. But uh, the kid hasn't been sleeping. And the kids are going on recess and the bully kids waiting on his ass. And he tells the teacher, he's like, I don't want to go to recess. And she's like, well, you can just lay your head down for a little while. And like turns off the fucking lights in the classroom and leaves. Well, the bully kid ends up coming back in there and he falls asleep. Right. And canker man shows up again. And the little girl that had been sitting next to him is now standing in the doorway of the classroom and sees the shit go down. This thing fucking comes up and consumes the kid. Right. And uh, it's pretty fucked up. Um. Meanwhile, we've got Jesse going to a doctor, and I think she actually works in a hospital or something. She's a nurse. Okay. And uh, she gets some fucking sleeping pills for him because she's, like, still going hardcore at this. Like, I'm going to get my son back any way I can. Right. And uh, starts feeding him the pills. Meanwhile, Mark is actually really, really trying to fall into the father-son dynamic. He um, takes him out of school for a day and, and lets him paint his room any way he wants to, and they're freaking playing video games and stuff. And uh, – Thomas Jane just being a bro like Thomas Jane can, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Punisher's got a heart of gold. And, uh, but he ends up asking, Cody asked them why, uh, well, first, like, do you want to see my race car bed? And, uh, but he asked, how did Sean die? And they say that he drowned. And we actually, I should have said this. Jesse has like a flashback when she sees the tub yeah. of Sean drowning. She, we already know it. Cody doesn't. She has visions of it. And also when they're getting the house ready for Cody to come, Mark, puts in like rails all around like handicap rails so that you could grab onto it if you were drowning. So on top of it, we've got this thing underneath of where she probably blames him. Like it's his fucking fault. Right. Anyways, it's a deep movie, but uh, we get into another dream sequence and Sean comes out and this is the one with the box. (laughs) And uh, 
So Sean pukes water into Jesse's face, and then his eyes go white, and then moths start flying out of his mouth. And this big box in front of him opens up, and fully formed canker man comes crawling <laughs> out. It's so creepy. Jesse ends up getting knocked down on the ground, and canker man wraps around and consumes Mark. That is one of the first times in a long time that I yelled, what the fuck, out loud at a TV, because I did not expect Thomas Jane to go like that. I yeah. was thinking he'd make it pretty close to the end, if not to the end. And exactly. Nope, nope. Like, he's the good guy. He's the one who's going to save the day in the... Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, Cody gets taken into foster care, because obviously something's happened. They think that Mark beat Jesse and vamped out. Right. And uh, she goes and does some fucking investigating. She goes back to the social worker foster care place and she steals the file from the social worker and uh, she ends up finding out about the previous foster family, which was the guy we saw at the beginning. Right. So she sits down with him. He's committed at this point. (laughs) And uh, he tells the whole story about what happened not only to his wife, but to other families. Don't know how he learned, but whatever. But he paints the picture of how, you know, it starts off really good at first. It's the butterflies, isn't it? And uh, but what keeps happening with every family this kid goes to, not only do his dreams come to life, but his nightmares come to life, too. And there's always a dark presence that comes with them. And uh, his wife ended up disappearing because of all this. And she was, quote unquote, brought back. But he knew it wasn't her. It was just what he imagined her as in his mind. Yeah. That none of it's really real. And uh, she actually keeps doing some more digging and uh, this time into Cody's birth mother. So let's get all the way to the source here. And I don't think it explicitly says this when she gets told that the deceased records are still down and blah, blah, blah. And she goes down in this records room and she starts pulling stuff out of a box and there's bagged personal effects. And you can see where it says the name and it says oncology on it. Mm -hmm. If you're real smart, you can figure out the movie right then. I was not smart enough to figure out the movie right then. (laughs) If you're talking about the the canker man, like, yeah, not till they said it. And uh, so in the personal effects, she finds this blue butterfly that mm-hmm. looks like it's like handmade and a book. Mm-hmm. And we don't know anything about what's in the book, but this is what she finds. And uh, she ends up going back to the foster facility because that's where they've kept uh, Cody. And uh, he's gone to sleep. I think actually they put his ass down. They shot him up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she comes in and it's like. It's kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street. She walks in and there's like darkness everywhere. There's people cocooned to fucking walls and shit. Because they make a thing about it earlier about what the cocoons that uh, Moth spins, the chrysalis, and that's what we're seeing these people in. And uh, she sees uh, Sean thrashing around in a bathtub. There's this whole bit with a woman with no eyes that she sees go up to Cody and jam her fingers into his head and shake his head around. And when she lets go, it's Sean kind of without eyes. Um, She sees Mark with no eyes, but I think a moth flies out. Um, Just a lot of really fucked up shit on her journey to make it to Cody. And she gets close. uh, She ends up seeing more moths. She follows the moths down a hall and gets to Cody's room. And it's guarded by canker man. And uh, Cankerman charges her, and she whips out the butterfly. Cankerman just stops. And you can actually see a faint glow of eyes in the sockets. Mm-hmm. I don't think you see them earlier in the movie, but you see this faint glow. And like this sympathetic release of tension body language thing. And she gives him a hug. First time watching this movie, it gets to this part, and I'm like, this movie's stupid. I don't know <laughs> what, what power this is. This is the worst shit I've seen since I turned my back on you, Nightmare on Elm Street shit. But Cankerman slowly shrinks down, turns into Cody, and then into nothing. 
It's like, oh, this is the, it's all in his mind. This is the structure he built. You just, you defeated it with a fucking hug. This is dumb. (laughs) And she goes into the room. She lays the butterfly on Cody and picks him up and she's carrying him down the hallway and walks past one of the cocoon people. And she says, let them go. And so I think the moths start turning back into butterflies. You see people coming out of the cocoons and everything. And uh, she takes him home. And uh, she lays him in bed and she explains the big, big reveal to him. This was your mother's journal. And when you were born, she realized you were very special. And they're showing flashbacks of he already was making shit appear even as a baby. Yeah. And, uh, And your mother wrote this, that, and the other, and then it stops. And it's like, it's not because she didn't want to write about you anymore. It's because she got sick. Right. And, uh, this is a word I'm like almost tearing up talking about this movie. And this is the word. And it was pancreatic cancer. And he goes, canker. Mm -hmm. And she goes, not quite. It's pronounced cancer. And then it does the whole thing where in the end, your mom would have been very sick. She wouldn't have looked familiar to you. And she probably said something really important to you. And it was the, I am always with right. you. Right. And she explains like the sunken eyes, the bald head, and it yeah. all starts making sense. Like I was just like, oh, <laughs> when I was watching the movie and all that got explained. Yeah. And in the flashback, it's uh, Courtney Bell, Courtney yeah. Bell and the nurse, doctor, whatever that brings him in into the room to see her towards the end is Mike Flanagan. Yeah. And, uh, but there you get it. It's the last thing he remembers seeing. It's the last thing he remembers hearing. It's this dark horrible thing that has manifest throughout his powers. And, uh, he asks like, okay, that's cool. Tell me a bedtime story. And, uh, the kid's great movie, by the way, he is so fucking good. She tells the story of this little boy who had these powers and who eventually led all these people, you know, this, she goes through some of the missing people. And it's like a woman made it back home to her husband and right. a boy woke up in his own bed. Everybody gets to come back except for Mark. I thought that was very odd. I got yeah. that as well. And, and she says, and he gets the greatest gift of all. And I get it. He gets to stay in purgatory with Sean. Okay. That's, I don't like that part, but, uh, and that's pretty much it. It ends right there. But as Cody's laying there, you see his eyes kind of close and you see a butterfly appear. But I think at this point, he's realizing that he can do this anytime he wants. I don't think he's asleep. Okay. That's that's wow. that's kind of what I took at the very end. I'd have to go back and watch it. I did think it was interesting when watching the film, because this is one of my watch for the first time for the podcast, that Mike Flanagan said it was his favorite original screenplay of his. And I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, this movie is good. I mean, as a, as a film, it's a good movie. It's not super scary on the horror. No. And I don't. I was like, I mean, he's telling a good story, but why is this his favorite? And then when you get to that fucking reveal with the journal and everything, I'm like, okay, this is ingenious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's like the way he built it up and then all that came out. And I'm like, he was really proud of himself for that canker thing, wasn't he? Exactly. <laughs> you know? And another interesting thing going with uh, the timeline, had the movie come out as quickly as it was supposed to, we would have had Absentia, Oculus, and Somnia. Mm-hmm. And that was the original title for the film. And it was sticking with this whole Latin naming thing. Yeah. And I think in some foreign mar- markets before I wake was actually marketed as Somnia. It was. Um, but that didn't happen stateside. So moving on to Ouija, Origin of Evil, 2016. <laughs> We've got Alice, Lena, Doris, Father Tom, and Jenny. Mm-hmm. And we got some familiar faces in here, right? Because yes. Jenny's Kate Siegel. We got little little Kaylee. Yep, was young, young Kaylee. Um, I guess some of these aren't familiar yet. They start to become familiar, right? Yeah, yeah fa- the guy who plays Father Tom, you've got him in later things. 
uh, and of course, Jenny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the movie's actually a prequel to Ouija. Full disclosure, never seen the first one. Terrible, <laughs> so I jumped, terrible fucking movie. I jumped straight into this one, which is crazy because he doesn't like sequels. And like, I don't know why they would, why would you randomly pick them? Like, yeah. why did Jason Blum feel like this was a franchise that needed saving? Like, let me call Mike. He can fix this. I can make more money off of it. I don't know. I just don't get it. It's funny that he took the job and it's funny that, you know, he basically didn't make a sequel, right? Well, go watch the first one and you can tell me if you see it differently, but I absolutely hated the original Ouija. Just uninspired, bland, blah. But at any rate. Witchboard is the Ouija movie for me, okay? <laughs> I can love that movie. I don't want to watch it because it, it could be terrible now. Like, I like that we were yeah. kids. But uh, the movie's set in 1967. It's got a fuck ton of uh, space uh, references in it and going to the moon and Apollo and shit because mm-hmm. he was, like, really into that at the time. Um, basically, we've got Alice, the fake fortune teller, who rips off people with the help of her teenage daughter, <laughs> uh, Paulina from here on referred to as Lena and her little daughter, Doris, because they're doing a reading and doing this blow out the candles thing. And you find out after the fact that it was uh, Doris up under a piece of furniture, blowing through pipes and <laughs> anything, but she's a fraud. And uh, you quickly find out dad's out of the picture. So it's 67. This is what they're doing to make ends meet, I guess. Um, but that night, Lena sneaks out to a party and the kids at the party and her end up playing with the Ouija board, which to them, it's this new thing, even though it's been around since like the 1920s. Um, I thought the box looked odd, right? Because that's not what I remember a Ouija board box looking like. And apparently that's the authentic 1967 box, which yep. I don't remember how I randomly saw that. And I was like, I like the newer box from where it gets better. <laughs> but uh, they're playing and we get really our only jump scare in the movie. And it's the girls whose house it is mom opening the door, wanting to know what right. the hell they're doing. Cause they've been drinking and shit. I think that's part of a, just several things about Mike Flanagan movies, but he does not do sting jump scares. Yeah. Like he does. A, there's something in the background that shouldn't be there. And when you see it, you scare, you're scared and you jump, but like with the sting, like a loud noise or whatever, he doesn't do the fucking cat jumping. It's really just a couple here and there. And thank yeah. you, Mike, for that. <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> But uh, Alice has to come pick her up and bring Doris in tow, um, who's asleep in the back of the car. And uh, she's like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, oh, well, we're just hanging out playing with this Ouija board thing. You should really consider putting it in your act. So she does. <laughs> she, you see her going and buying some candles and shit. She buys a Ouija board and she takes it home and she's immediately rigging it. She's yes. putting magnets on it and a, something on her knee so she can move the planchette around with her knee. And uh, as she's sitting there, she decides to actually play with it. And uh, I forget what she says, um, but what we end up seeing is whatever is talking to her upstairs, Doris just randomly starts saying all these things. Right. And we're seeing it from Lena's perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who's sitting over on the bed and she's like, what the fuck is going on here? They've got an, I think they come home from somewhere and there's an eviction notice. And uh, Doris is like, oh, I know where some money is. Like, here you go. I'm like, where'd you get this? And it's like, dad told me where to find it. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You see her, like she went to the basement and like took some brick and mortar out of the wall and reached in and got it. Right. Yep. And, uh, so they all sit down at the Ouija board and they tell her to talk to dad and they're trying to figure out if it's fake or not. So Alice asks the spirit, um, where were you when I told you I was pregnant with Lena? Right. And it spells out shower. And she's like, holy fuck balls. This shit must be real. <laughs> so then she starts using Doris to be a real gateway in the act and start making more money. 
um, Doris quickly starts having neck pains Mm -hmm. and she's asking daddy, why does it hurt? And uh, she's sitting there talking about her because she gets up in the middle of the night with her neck hurting and she's playing with the board by herself like you're never supposed to do. (laughs) And uh, she picks up the planchette and she's looking through it and she can see like shadowy figures dart behind walls like the same shit we've talked about seeing out of the corner of our eyes growing up. Most people do. I'm sure there's a medical reason for it, but I like to think it's ghosts. I thought that was a really nice touch though, looking through it. You know what I mean? And uh, she gets up and she goes walking around. She walks in front of this big mirror. Then in the reflection, you see these like oil covered (laughs) C-3PO's. That's that's my joke. Okay. You see, you got the glowing orange eyes and they're these dark covered, almost mechanical looking people. Okay. And actually in this scene, it's just one and it shoves its arm down her throat. Mm -hmm. She fucking throws her back over backwards. Like, like laying there in midair and shit. And uh, it's obvious that some kind of possession is now taking place. And, um, We've got Lena gets woke up by whispers in her ear and uh, she goes into the bathroom and uh, in the mirror, she realized that her mouth has gone all Mr. Anderson because it's just like the Matrix, man. Her mouth is not sewn shut, but covered shut. It's got the weird little tears in it to where you can still kind of see. Like it's melding together and stuff, right? It looks just like it does in the Matrix. Um, I think it's the the next day at school. Doris is, uh, she's sitting there. She's already the outcast kid, it seems, for some reason. This poor she's talking girl. to herself and shit, right? Yeah. And, and her name's fucking Doris. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such an old name. Well, it's 67. 67. It's weird to see a kid with that name. I know, Sorry. right? And uh, she's sitting there on the playground, and there's these two boys, and one of them's like, hey, watch this, and draws back a slingshot at her. And she just turns, like, over her shoulder and looks at him. And he slowly starts turning the slingshot towards himself. And the other kid's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And it cuts away from it and cuts back to Doris. You just hear, ah! and Doris smiles. And uh, it's one of the many shots in the movie that feels very like it's out of the omen or the exorcist or something. There's a lot of the camera work was done on purpose for right. the time period. Um, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, Alice ends, ends up going to dinner with Father Tom. Elliot? Warren, <laughs> do what? It's Elliot from E.T. You never noticed that? That's who that is? <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Do you see this? You see this expression right now? Are you, are you fucking kidding me? No, it's Elliot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. How am I going to make it through the rest of this? <laughs> but he's like, that's why I looked at you like, what the fuck are you talking about? But, uh, but he tells her about the occult and that they're messing with things that they shouldn't be messing with. And, uh, but at least we know that he's kind of in the know now while this is going on, uh, Mikey, uh, Lena's love interest, Mm -hmm. who there's been a couple interactions with in the movie. Um, he comes over and they're sitting upstairs and she's like, you need to go. My mom's going to be back soon. And, uh, and something about her wrath or whatever. And he's like, oh, it's just like Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he gets his kiss and, uh, he's going downstairs and Doris is already acting creepy at this point. Like, I think when he walks upstairs, she's got the wide eyes and the mouth wide open. And you hear the static. This is so much more creepy though. But when he comes downstairs, she's like, do you know what it's like to be hanged to death or strangled to death? <laughs> strangled. Okay. Do you know what it's like to be strangled to death? And she gives this very, very long detailed explanation of what your circulatory system goes through, what you feel, what you think, where it originates from, yada, yada, yada in this great almost monotone delivery. She's not as good as she could have been. That's my only hang up. I was going to say, this is another great child actor in a horror movie. Yeah, she's good. She's also in the Annabelle movie. She Um, reminds me of, um, uh, 
Paranormal Activity 3. A little bit, that girl. I am the bringer of he. Like, a little bit. Not as good as... That's where I was Not going. as good, like, not but, as good but as she her. reminds me of her. Yeah. But, uh, so she gives the, the whole long explanation and goes, good night, Romeo. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay, there's something connected here between what happened upstairs and what's being done now. I didn't... I love it when you point out, like, a little fact like that. And I'm like, oh, because I know where you're going with that at the end. And it ties it in. And this is what happens when, like, I'm watching a movie for the first time for, for the podcast. I really should start trying to watch them twice. I can catch little <laughs> subtle nuances like that. But uh, later, uh, Lena sees Doris scribbling madly something on the floor, but she's looking away the whole yeah. time. And uh, she gets into, or no, she sees that her doll's mouth. Is stitched shut. Yeah. And she's yelling at doors for it. Like, why did you do this? She's like, I didn't do it. Daddy did it. Right. She's like, you're fucking losing it, kid. <laughs> and mom comes in. She's like, what's all this noise? And Lena's had it. She's like, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but something's wrong with her. It's changing her. We don't need to be doing this shit. And uh, she's really good. The actress that plays Lena. Yeah. Because, I mean, she's in this and Oculus, you yeah. know, and she's fantastic in both. Um, but yeah, she thinks there's something wrong with her. She She hypothesized that she's not talking to dad. So Lena finds the papers and ends up taking them to school and she shows them to father Tom. And I don't remember if she says it's in Polish or he says it's in Polish, but they know they need someone that can speak Polish to read it. Yeah. She thinks it's Polish. I don't know why she thinks it's Polish. And he says that sister, blah, blah, blah. came over from the war. Yeah. Like family came from old war two or right. something. Yeah. And, uh, so we end up back at the house. Um, he shows up and he's wanting a reading. It's like, mm-hmm, Hey, I'm mm-hmm. going to take you up on, on this thing. I'd like to talk to my wife. And, uh, oh yeah, I should have brought that up. Like his, his wife's dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a good time to bring it up right then. <laughs> and so they do, uh, they do the reading and, uh, he asks, uh, what's her middle name, I think. And, uh, just that's a, definitely in there. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple of, of specific questions mm-hmm. and then finishes the reading and then tells Alice, like, I need to talk to you about some trouble Lena's having at school. Can we mm-hmm. go ahead and talk about that while I'm here? She's like. Well, no. Can you come some other time? He's like, I really would rather talk about it now away from Doris. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. And so they go upstairs and he explains that he tricked her and that if she was actually talking to the dead, there would have been different answers. But instead, he was thinking the answers he wanted to hear during the reading. Yeah, he thought his mother's name, not his wife's name, for example. Exactly. And then there was something else that she changed the subject on that he just cleared his mind of everything and just heard static. So he's like, there's something here that can see things, but it's not what you think it is. And then he starts going through the friggin' papers. And I'm going to butcher the story because I didn't write all this shit down. But uh, basically, there was this horrible dude that used to torture and kill people. He was a doctor during the war, and they called him the devil's doctor. Mm. And he had somehow made it to the States. And he ended up in this house and there was a secret room in the basement where he was still torturing and killing people right. for X amount of years. And that's where the money came from. Exactly. So whatever, whatever you think you're talking to, that's what it is. And what we need to do is, and Lena's like, would you shut up? Whatever's been watching us is still here watching us. Yes. <laughs> um, and she points that out because like the shower thing, she's like. Because her mom's like, oh, I asked. And, yep. he, you know, the board knew something only your father would know that I told in the show. And she's like, but that happened in this house. So they saw it in this house. Yeah. So Mikey comes over and uh, he's greeted by Doris. And she's like, hey, do you want to see something neat? And I was like, come down to the basement. And it's like, well, where's everybody else at? 
they'll be right here. <laughs> they'll be right back or something like that. And they go down to the basement. And I think this is happening like, oh, it is. It's happening alongside while the story of what happened in the basement is being told. Right, detail. right. We get the friggin' Flanagan cut back and forth thing. And uh, so the diary is of Marcus, as who is telling the story. But once we get to his death, the diary continues. And he's talking about the things that were in the dark that were never human, that were now <laughs> taking him over. And while this is going on, Doris has got uh, – Mikey reaching in the hole in the wall for treasure and he pulls out a medical bag and it's got like IDs of some of the victims and he reaches back in again and he pulls out a skull. Yeah. And while this is going on, you can see Doris's head in the shadow kind of twitch and the eyes and all this weird shit happens. And she leans in and starts whispering in his ear. And apparently this is the, how the spirit or whatever is going to go from one person into the other. Um, cause the next thing we see is they come down from upstairs and are down in the living room and all of a sudden Mikey's hung body falls yeah. down in the foyer. So he's killed himself. He's been convinced to do this or something. They're freaking out cause this body just fell out of nowhere. They don't know where Doris is, but they can hear music. They go down into the basement and they end up looking through the hole in the wall and see it's just filled with bodies. Yeah. There's just bones everywhere. Yeah. Um, they can hear Doris through a vent and. Uh, Father Tom goes through there and he's now in the hidden room and uh, we get the shot that I hate. It's where um, Doris is kind of off in the shadow and just suddenly floats across the room towards Father Tom, very Pennywise, <laughs> which I don't like that either when he comes charging across. I don't know if it's the frame rate or what. I just don't like it. So Father Tom crawls out of the uh, crawls back out through the vent and he stands up and I forget what he says, but his eyes are now white. And he's holding a fucking knife. It's like, oh shit, he's got it now too. So Alice and Lena go running upstairs and I think it's Lena makes it out. And Alice says something to father Tom that makes him kind of snap out of it for a second. And he tells her to go and shuts the door. He turns back around. Uh, we get a part. shot from down the stairs up to where he is at the top of the stairs. And Doris is up on the ceiling right above him. And she spooks him in some way because he falls down the stairs. I don't yeah. think she throws him or maybe she does the yell. I thought she and, did like a yell okay. and it like blew him back. He falls down the stairs and breaks his neck. So he gone. <laughs> so we see uh, Alice and Lena make it back upstairs again. They see, oh, I fucked this up. When they went downstairs, they took the fucking Ouija board with them to burn it. And they burn it in the furnace. Now when they come back upstairs, they see it back set up on the table. Um Mikey's body fucking comes to life and fucking starts lunging and fucking. Uh, it's really creepy because it's like an off-screen yo-yo comes in and just yeah. fucking grabs her and yanks her. So Lena gets thrown up the stairs. Uh, Alice gets thrown in the floor, and Doris is whispering in Lena's ear on the stairs while Alice is saying, "What do you want? What do you? What is it that you want?" And uh, it wants a voice, a vessel. It's like, "Take me, take mine. You can have anything. Just leave my girls alone." So then Doris drags Alice down into the basement and uh, we see dad, the real dad, Roger, show up and put uh, Lena to bed. And what we realize is he's the one who stitched the doll's mouth shut right. to keep the whispers away. And uh, meanwhile, down in the basement, we've got uh, Doris now has Alice like chained to the torture table. So and has the knife again and shit's fixing to get real. Then all of a sudden you see that Lena is behind Doris with a bar stool and fucking knocks Doris down. 
undoes mom's shackles and then is trying, grabs the needle and thread and jumps on Doris and is trying to stitch her mouth shut. And you have all the dark creatures with the eyes show up. And, uh, well, that's when she sees down her throat and there's this eye down inside of her throat, mm-hmm. like whatever it is, is inside her. And what's funny is they don't, you don't see the stitches go through. You just see her swing in and keep seeing the stitch come back up into frame. It is so unsettling while being not graphic. But, uh, they, uh, they all drag her away. The dark creature things drag Lena away, but dad shows up and you see dad is actually stitching Doris's mouth shut. So. Alice ends up getting up off of the table and uh, she's sitting there holding Doris and she's crying and cause it's like Doris is dead now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really weird. I don't know how that works. And I wonder if she was dead the whole time was being used as a puppet. Like I wonder if once you get possessed or yeah. something, That's, I was trying to figure that out too. Cause she's just abruptly dead. Well, we're fixing to no, that theory won't work because of what we're fixing to discuss. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, so Lena comes into frame and I forget what she says, but we cut to another shot to where we can see her open her eyes that are still white. And she stabs her mom in the fucking stomach. Yep. So, and that's one of the things I hate about the ending of the movie. Cause you know, well, or there's a little bit more here, but that part of the movie, cause you know, when she got whispered in the ear on the stairs that it's over, she's already yeah. fucked. She's taken over. We've had that explained basically through the movie. Um, but we immediately jump cut to Lena with a doctor and what were we talking about? Like, she can't remember what, what we were saying is like, we were talking about what happened with your mother and where's your sister. She's like, Oh yeah, my sister. Yeah. And your mother's like, Oh yeah, my mother. Like she can't, she's she, not lucid at all. Exactly. And, uh, we see her getting taken back to her room and she rips up the carpet and she's got mm-hmm. a pair of glasses. She's lifted off the doctor and in her own blood, she draws out a Ouija board and is using, holding the eyepiece out of the glasses to try to talk to Doris. Doris, yes. She actually asked for Doris. And then we see the doctor coming down the hallway, I guess, making his rounds. And he looks into her room through the little window in the door. And she's standing right there just staring at him. And it cuts to the side angle where you can see down the hall. And friggin' ceiling crawling Doris <laughs> comes <laughs> rushing up and uh, gets right to him. And we're done. We go to credits. Post-credits. We end up seeing Lynn Shay sitting in the same room and somebody's there to see her. And I can't remember the damn name, but it's the setup for going into the original Ouija. And I feel like I went way too fucking detailed explaining that movie <laughs> that I wanted to. Um, I don't think the movie is that great. There were too many things in it that you could see coming a mile away. You could see that Doris was going to be the one to make contact. You knew Doris was not talking to dad. And the twist at the end of Lena stabbing uh, mom, you know that's fixing to happen because you just saw her get whispered in her ear. It definitely felt more like a franchise type horror flick than a Flanagan movie, but you could see the Flanagan touch touch to it. Um, And there's a lot of interesting things like him not liking sequels, him not really wanting to do it, Jason Blum talking him into it, and and then like it being PG thirteen, which he doesn't do PG thirteen movies. Like, and it's because like the hook scene, like hooking the, the kid doing the slingshot in the face, those things are like fucking horrific, but it's done off screen yeah, and not in a cheesy way where you see the knife come down and the camera pans, it still fucks with you. And it's cause he figured out a way to do it. It's also a good bit more CGI. I feel like in this movie than, or whatever it is, you know, like for the yeah. effects, 
Because he he's, uses like lots of subtle things and practical effects and background images usually to scare you. And this one has like the demons and your C-3PO's or whatever and yeah, everything going they on. Just, I, I make that joke because they just weren't scary to me. Yeah. Um, now, there was a lot of post-processing in the film to fit the era because uh-huh. it was shot in digital. So they went in and put in the cigarette burns around every 20 minutes. I'm laughing because uh, I was a projectionist for years. And uh, I was watching the movie and I, I, at the tw- 20 minute mark, roughly, I texted Josh and I said, oh my God, he put cigarette burns in the movie and it was at the right time and everything. <laughs> yep. um, they have the film jump the gate so it, it shakes or gets ahead or behind itself um, and the warbling audio. So the whole thing set up that it's a real change, dirtying up the, the optics of it a little bit, um, shot with, uh, oh, I forget, I read what they're called, but it's a, a split lens that lets the foreground and the background be in focus at the same time. So I read, or not read, I saw him say they used like old school lenses on new school cameras. Was another, yeah. yeah, so like that it would have that, it yeah. looked a little bit more dated. So, and that's the thing, you did, you did get some of that. I don't, it was distracting to me. Oh, spots. see, I liked it. I feel like that was a Flanagan touch. Like, you know, because <laughs> he was doing a sequel to a movie that wasn't his own and they told him he could do whatever he wanted. So he made it a prequel and he wanted to make it feel like a period piece, I guess. You know what I mean? And and have those little things. Because like I said, I didn't know any of that until after I watched the movie about the lenses and stuff. And like the cigarette yeah. burn when I saw it just made me giddy. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I thought it was a nice touch. It was for picking up somebody else's work and making a prequel to it. I, I felt like it, it turned out pretty good. I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. It's not bad, but it's not great. And you're right. It does feel like it's something else. Like, well, it feels like what it is. It's some other project that he was asked to come on to. Yeah. Not one of his movies. Uh, one interesting factoid before we move on is uh, the the scene at the end where you walk, you know, the post credit scene was originally at the end of the movie and the psychiatric ward and Ouija board and doors from the ceiling wasn't there. Okay. And preview audiences kept going, Oh, it ties in with Insidious when they'd see Lynn Shay. <laughs> and he's like, well, fuck. So he moved that into credits and then he added the little extra scene okay. at the award so that people didn't think it was an Insidious movie. Because <laughs> apparently you see her, it's got to be Insidious now. I so know, right? That was a nice little touch. I guess that finally wraps up his uh, 2016 year. Yep. <laughs> like, that was a busy year for that man. So now we move on into 2017 and Gerald's game. Yep, yep. Um, Something that was supposedly never supposed to be able to be made into film, nope. according to Stephen King himself. Very small cast. I'm noticing a theme here with that sometimes. Yeah. Jesse, Gerald, Mom, and Dad. There's, he likes that name Jesse, doesn't he? He really does. I like that name, too. <laughs> there are a couple other characters in the movie, but these are the core ones we're going to focus on. And um, so we have the couple, Jesse and Gerald, driving off somewhere. They almost hit a uh, stray dog. On the radio, they hear reports that there's a grave robber in right. the area, and uh, they finally make it to this lake cabin or lake house. I always want to say cabin. It's a lake house. <laughs> they make it to the lake house, and this is just what they need. They're isolated. They're alone. This is something that's going to help them. Their marriage is on the rocks. Let's let's go have a kinky yeah. sex retreat. This yeah. will fix everything. Well, we end up with, uh, we've got Jesse leaves out some meat for the poor dog that she was worried about that they almost hit. And um, Gerald actually comes out there and he's like, that's $200 a serving. What are you doing? Yeah, that's pure Kobe meat from yeah. Kobe. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think we already saw him pop his Viagra and he's yep. like grabbing her by the arm. It's like, we need to go back inside. <laughs> and uh, he's so excited to get some that they leave the front door open. And she they, sees it too. Yeah. And they go into the bedroom 
and he whips out the handcuffs and she's like, oh, oh, this is going to be a bit more than I was expecting, but she plays along. Yeah. She gets into like her nice slip and everything and she's like laying down posing. I'm ready. And he, he comes out and these two are great because it's Corla Gugino and, and Bruce Greenwood. And like yeah. they are both fucking seasoned actors and actresses, you know, and just really kind of coming on their own. But he like walks in there and he's like, oh, I love your outfit. And he's just got the handcuffs and that look on her face like the fuck yeah she was <laughs> expecting sexy seductive time and we're quickly fixing to find out gerald had other things in mind right so he changed her to the bed and she's not really that into it and he starts talking about how there's no one around to hear her scream yeah and it's quickly obvious that it's a rape fantasy and yep. she's not having it he also would like to be called daddy yep and she's not having that either Mm-mm. and they have a quick fight and discussion she's like i'll try let's just Go back to it, and he has a fucking heart attack. I do want to point out there was a couple extra Viagra's popped during the talking about the handcuffs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. like he's, he he really wants it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's fucking dead, lifeless on top of her. She's crying and freaking out. She's trying to push his body um, off of her and pushes him off the bed and into the floor. And if you haven't seen this, she's like. Like Jesus on the cross yeah. spread out here the way she's she's cuffed to the headboard. So we've got Gerald's body in the floor. This woman's chained to the bed. The phone's like so far that way. The keys are so far this way. She's not going to get away. And her arms are just so spread she's fucked anyway. She yeah. can't do anything. Um, she hears noises and the dog from earlier, got a taste for meat now. Yep. Fucking comes into the bedroom and starts gnawing on fucking Gerald's arm and uh, or his corpse's arm. Right. And all of a sudden we've got Gerald on the bed. And what's fucked up about this movie and go into the book is what plays out is an internal monologue in this woman's mind. Right. And the first character to show up that she's thinking of is Gerald. And she starts having conversations with him that's actually picking apart a her past with him and B, his psyche and her psyche, and did she really know who she was married to? Right. And it plays out through stories of, remember the time I told this joke at this dinner party and you only caught the end of it? There's there's a lot of exchanges here. And I, right. if I talk about all of them, I'm going to talk for two hours. Yeah, and just to know that they're they're talking about like things outside of her current situation, then they're also picking apart the current situation, right? Yes. And we have Jesse's own self show up as another character. And so Gerald is the, you're wrong, you're dumb, you can't get anything right, you're going to die here character. Whereas the Jesse character is more of the, you're stronger than this, you need to stop and think, and how are you going to survive? So we got the angel and the devil on the shoulders, right? Exactly. So it starts off with a survival situation. And Jesse tells Jesse, it's really fucked up to say, that Gerald gave her. I what, do it all the time. Because of those little <laughs> blue pills, she has what she needs to live. And she remembers him setting the glass of water on the shelf above the bed. Right. And there's a book sitting up there, too. <laughs> and uh, she, I don't know where she gets the paper. I always forget that. It's the... Uh, so when she lays down on the bed trying to look sexy and he's in the bathroom before he comes out, she realizes she still has like the price tag on the ah, thing. Okay. So she tears it off and puts it on there. And that's why Jesse references like what she's wearing. Okay. And she's like, oh yeah, I got the cardboard up here. But she ends up using that to make a makeshift straw so she can get the, she manages to get the cup of water off of the shelf, but she can't reach it to her mouth. And of course, Gerald's making fun of her because she's dumb. She can't do anything, but she has that. She gets a sip. She puts the water back there because she's going to need it later. 
And this is pretty much what goes on for about the next 45 minutes. And it's intercut with um, Jesse going in and out of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And she's having these dream states that are more like a flashback. And what comes out in all this is that when she was 12, the family took a trip to that lake house. And her mom and her brother were the, was that the other kid? Yeah. I didn't realize it was the same lake house. I just thought it was a lake house. Uh, it may, could, maybe it, I could be completely wrong, but what happens is the rest of the family goes out on the lake to watch the eclipse and mm-hmm. her and dad stay behind. Elliot again, <laughs> <laughs> Elliot again, that's fuck, dude. I can't believe that shit. That's crazy. <laughs> but, uh, he starts talking about how she's not too big to sit on his lap. This is and so, this is like, one of the, I was gonna say this is one of the darkest things Mike's ever done, but this was Stephen King that yeah. did this. And she sits on his lap and she's watching the eclipse and he just fucking feels the need to rub one out because he's got a small child sitting on his lap. That's his daughter. I mean, it's wrong if it's any small child, but there's like just you add a second fucked up layer to it at that point. Yeah, it is. He's like, oh, I love your outfit. and You're such a woman now. And it's like, nope, nope, she's not. And she's still your daughter. Yeah. And he tells her, just keep watching the eclipse because she's like, daddy, daddy. Yeah. And it's really fucked. Afterwards, I, th- I think she comes back. There's some more dynamic between the character voices in her head. Um, but she goes back to it's what he said afterwards that was when he really hurt her. Right. And he basically manipulated her into feeling guilty for ever wanting to tell anyone. Right. And does the. Oh, what would this do to your mother and this, this, the, and that? Yeah, the entire victim shaming thing to where it's her fault. So the struggle that's happening within her mind while this is going on is. You married the first guy that came along. You've never been comfortable with sex because of what was done to you. This guy's a pervert, and you've been so scared of sex that you can't even meet him in the middle. Right. And this is what's brought you here. But what about all the times he was gone? What about all those business trips? What about this, that, and the other? Do you really think he, he wasn't getting what he needed because a dog's got to eat? I right. think is the phrase that gets used. Because yeah. meanwhile, the dog keeps showing up. And is eating some more of uh, of the body and the floor. We get to nightfall. And <laughs> in the shadows, Jesse can see this tall figure. Mm-hmm. And it makes its way towards her a little bit and is holding this box. And he shows her what's inside the box <laughs> and it's jewelry and bones. Yep. And she's like, that's not real. That's not real. This can't be real. And Gerald's right there in his face. It's like, is he? No one's the land because there's the whole thing like the groundskeeper will be here this day. The the neighbor couple are gone. I made sure no one would be here. He set it up just so they could have alone time. Yeah. And it's like, do you know if he's real? Do you know if he's not? He probably is real. You'll find out the next night and all this shit. But he's fucking with her so much. You don't know what's going on. But uh, she goes back into another flashback and it's the or another dream. And it's the dinner with the family when she was a young girl after being told she's not going to say anything. And she's sitting there at the table and she gets so enraged and gets such superhuman strength. that She squeezes and shatters the drinking glass that she has. And, uh, she's taken into the bathroom and being cleaned up. And Jesse's telling herself that, uh, before blood coagulates, it's as slick as oil. Yeah. And she's putting together the idea of you have everything you need to escape. And this is a really, really fucking, I don't like wrist stuff. I don't need the wrist stuff fucks me up more than cannibalism does. Uh, 
And uh, this is the most horrific fucking thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I don't care if Stephen King wrote it. Mike Flanagan <laughs> planned that shit out and filmed it. And it fucked me up. And I, I showed a guy at work because I was talking about it. And I pulled it up. I was like, you got to see this. And he's like, you're such a bitch. And he's watching it. And he's just like, uh, uh, like so uncomfortable trying to watch it as well. The first time she has the flashback was when Gerald calls her mouse. Okay. She's like, why did you call me that? What did you just call me? And in the flashbacks, we see that that's dad's nickname for her. Ah, yeah, it was. And uh, yeah, sorry, I left that out earlier because it becomes important here in a few minutes. But uh, she takes the glass and she gets it down off the shelf again. She busts it and she takes a piece of glass and she cuts across her wrists. And well, it's first, all done real slow. It's really, it's done super slow, but she, she carves the shard of glass into the shelving. That's right. So that it's held in place. That's then right. she can cut her wrist. And there's the monologue with herself about how like. There's less nerve endings. That's why people suicide that way. And this, 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 and that. And slitting the wrist, it's so fucking bad when she does it. But then then the glove scene happens. That's all I know to call it. Yeah, because she cuts across her wrist, and then she cuts up the palm of her hand. Mm-hmm. So then she's spinning her hand and pulling real hard through the cuffs, and the cuffs start to fold the two flaps of skin over and literally start rolling and peeling the flesh almost entirely off of her hand, all up to the fingers. I mean, she degloves her hand. I do not know there's another the, way to say term. it. And But she gets her hand out. She drags the bed over to the counter, gets the key. She undoes the other cuff, and she gets like, maxi pads and shit and bandages up herself as Which best is a good she idea, can actually and she's going to leave and she blacks out just fucking falls out right there on the floor i think there's another flashback I, I seriously don't recall but when she comes to down at the end of the hall she sees the man from the shadows again which uh gerald had called the moonlight man she actually wakes up though laying on gerald's fucking mangled body and the dog's chewing on her fucking That's bandaged right. hand it is just all fucked up. And uh, that's like she hits the dog and runs straight into the moonlight man. Yeah. And uh, does she give him the wedding ring? Well, she's walking up to him and. Are she, you real? She keeps saying, you're not real. Or you're not real. Yeah. You're not real. And he opens up the box and she puts the wedding ring in there, which I guess that's what's in the book. So whatever. I thought it was weird. I mean, I guess like she saw that he collects jewelry and she doesn't know if it's real or not, but she thinks it's death. So it's like she's paying her toll so she oh, okay. can go. It's kind of what I got out of it. But she's got the car keys. She gets in the car and she's fucking half dead, bleeding out, tired of shit. Fucking muscles aren't working because she's been <laughs> in the bed for like three days at this yeah. point. She's hauling ass through the woods at night and all of a sudden the sky goes red. Well, in all of her flashbacks during the eclipse, the sky's red. Yeah. And she's just looking up and the, the trees clear. Yeah. And she's looking up at the eclipse and then all of a sudden the moonlight man's in the back seat. And the glowing one, eyes too. It's like, yeah. ah, that's one of those like non sting jump scares that makes you jump like a motherfucker. Yeah. But I, this is like my favorite two shots in the whole movie. And all of a sudden he's leaned up into the front seat right in her ear and he just goes mouse. Yeah. And the second that he gets the word out, you cut to the real world and her slamming into a tree yeah. just instantly. And uh, it's very, very jarring. Yes. And she's fucked up now from the car wreck, but she can see, and we can see in the distance a house. So she just lays on the fucking horn. So we cut to some time later and she's fine. And she's got this, well, she's not fine. She's got this <laughs> brace thing on her hand. But it's a, it's a frictionless glove. Cause they had to regraph her okay. skin on it. It burns like fuck. So she has to keep that on there. So she's like, uh, right. And she's writing, she's pinning this letter and she even says, I'm writing this with my right hand 
it hurts, yeah. yada, yada, yada. And she starts telling the story of what had happened to her and how she had repressed it. And she's writing the letter to her 12-year-old self, yes. which from my understanding is not who she's writing the letter to in the book. I, I don't know. I haven't actually read this book. Yeah. It's a it's another character that was deleted. Left out. Yeah. But at any rate, um, the interesting thing she tells in the story is, number one, she learned to face this and she now uses it. She never wanted to tell the story. And now she tells the story every day to other girls in the same situation. And now she helps them. Um the company that Gerald worked for wanted to keep the whole thing, the sex part of it, real quiet. She got the life insurance, 401k, whatever. She had yeah. her money. She used it to set up a foundation for said girls. It's girls and boys. She specifically says that oh, they've been sorry. abused. Yeah. Well, yeah, boy abuse is about to come up, um, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she says that at some time later or six months later, I think, that uh, she starts seeing these news articles um, about he's got a French name. I forget it um, about this grave robber who is about to go to trial and she ends up seeing pictures of him. And we see that it's the moonlight man. Yep. And the story goes that he was a grave robber and it escalated from there. He went from stealing jewelry to cutting off body pieces to necrophilia. Yep. And he would only defile male corpses. Yep. And this eventually led to a young man waking up to finding a naked moonlight man on top of him, uh, trying to cut off his ear. Yeah. And she starts to realize that he must have been real. Yeah. And the fact that he only liked men must have saved her. Yes. So in a way, which is a really neat idea, what should have been the worst possible scenario that was built up. You're tied here alone. No one can get you. You're the perfect victim. And you're going to get raped. And, and you're you're would be killer or rapist, whatever was actually one of the elements that helped pull you out of here. Right. Which is kind of neat. It was a really big mind fuck to me, not reading the book. Like, cause I didn't know if the moonlight man was real or not. And I thought it was going to be ambiguous and then nope. (laughs) But she ends up, she's going to go to his trial or at least to his sentencing, whatever she goes to the courthouse and he's there and uh, he spins around and he's like, you're not real. You're not real. You're only made of moonlight. Right. And his face changes to Gerald's face and to her dad's face. And, uh, and as the face has changed, she leans up to him and she goes, you're so much smaller than I remember. And then we get the real drama chick flick closing shot of her walking and the eclipse is clearing the sun. Yeah. And, uh, but you get it in that moment. She's that, that was the last thing she needed to, restart her life, um, put her demons behind her, face the demons, acknowledge them, put them behind her. Um, it's hard to review, quote unquote, review this as a movie, um, knowing that it's based off of a book that right. I haven't read. Um, I did look up a little bit just to see some subtle differences. Um, in the book, it's all internal monologues. Yeah. Um, but she does visit, quote unquote, and talk with other characters, some of which were dumped from the movie. Um it's a really good movie. It's a really yeah. fucked up movie. Um, that's a lot of work for the two main actors to yes. go through. I mean, they had to carry the movie. They're both fantastic in it. And I think the real tragedy here, though, is that Gerald didn't contact his doctor after maintaining stiffness for longer than four <laughs> hours on Viagra. <laughs> oh, his rigor ass is still there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's what they were talking about. There's a couple Stephen King references that I caught in there, though. Um, 
Like when she sees the woman looking down over the well, that's Dolores Claiborne. And Gerald says something about the beams and that's from Dark Tower. Oh, okay. So I called a couple of little subtle things. I want to say there's another yeah, one. But- and, one of, and what you're talking about, there's one of the scenes in the movie where she's talking about a dream or a memory where she's in the bottom of a well. Yeah. And uh, it's just interesting because Flanagan is a huge Stephen King fan and he wanted to put as many Stephen King Easter eggs in a Gerald's game while putting his own Easter eggs in there, which I'm going to kind of get to that as a fun little quick game at the end. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I want to mention if you haven't seen it, I'm pretty sure everybody in the world has seen it. The fucking haunting of Hill house was the next thing he worked on. Yeah. And it was Netflix and it is a a re-imaging of the book, Um, but he fucking went his own way with it. You see a lot of the same actors and actresses popping up from all his other movies. Um, This is his using imagery to fuck you up to its fullest extent. I feel like in that show, it's fantastic. Um, There's so many like hidden faces and stuff that you'll just keep going back and watching. The ending disappointed me a little bit, but right there with you, which is really funny because it's like a happy ending and he doesn't do happy endings. (laughs) Oculus is not a happy ending. Absentia is not a happy ending. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like uh, normally things end up terribly for everybody and just not that one time. Yeah. But it's very well received. It is Pretty creepy for the most part. It is a damn good story. Lots of good character building with the siblings in the house. Yeah. And uh, there's a second season that's going to be a different haunted house with different people. So that'll be kind of neat to see. Yeah, that'll be Bly Manor. Yep, yep. He has Dr. Sleep coming out this year, I think, in November, which is Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. Okay. And Ewan McGregor is playing Danny grown up. So that should be fucking awesome. And apparently he pinned the I Know What You Did Last Summer remake for Blumhouse, which is still looking for a director and whatnot. He's probably going to get suckered into that by Jason. So, but, we're, just, so we're just going to see the 90s reboot start happening. I have to come to, come to peace with it, huh? Yeah. I'll let him do it, though, I think. I mean, <laughs> I, like it, I mean, after checking out these movies, what do you think about them, man? Like I alluded to in the beginning, it's not for me, but it's so fucking good. Even I can appreciate it. I love that when you say not for me and you're like, Oculus is fucking awesome. That that is the one (laughs) exception. I love that movie. That movie made me, it affected me, man. Right. And the more, the more I watch, uh, before I wake, the more it affects me. I mean, I was literally nearly tearing up because the subject matter is close to both of us. Right. Um, And Gerald's game, you're, you're a fan of that one. So I mean, that's half his movie. Yeah. I love being chained to, uh, wait, no. Oh, the movie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, where are we going with this? And then you like Hush. It's just not your favorite slasher movie. Correct. We we don't get a lot of good slasher movies anymore. So play a little game here on the catch the lasser glass. Um, Did you see it throughout the movies? Yes. So absentia. Yes. Absentia. There's a shot that it's center fucking frame and holds there. Yeah. It's a psychiatrist's office, right? Yeah. Uh, Oculus. Duh. <laughs> it's in there a couple of times. Um, I caught it. I barely caught it in origin evil. It was uh, in the basement. Yeah. Leaned up against the wall. Yeah. There's two shots and they, they kind of hide it cause it's stuffed in a corner, but it, yeah, it's in the basement. Um, I failed you here. It, I swear I saw it. And before I wake in an office, I swear I did like one of the self-help meetings or something, but I could not find any trace of it on the internet. And I did not have time to go back and rewatch the movie. I was as sure as you that it was in that fucking movie and I couldn't find it on the internet. And I watched the movie a third fucking time before the podcast and still couldn't find it. I'm still going to go back and rewatch that <laughs> motherfucker. And then maybe I'll put some screenshots on the Instagram. I got hit up, man. I forgot to do the, African tribal painting for the insidious 
and Paranormal Activity movies on Instagram after oh. I started doing it. And I got emails about it. Oh. <laughs> and then I couldn't find Shame. them on the internet. I couldn't find them on the internet. Like nobody has them. I did it myself. And I okay, put okay. Do you not go to our Instagram? We have an Instagram? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, let's go back to the matter at hand here, though. Gerald's game. It's the fucking headboard. Yeah. Like that was, I didn't notice it the first time I watched it, but I did the second time. Yeah. But I mean, the first time I watched it was premiere night. It's in Haunting a Hill House. Um, for those of you who've seen it, and if you've never seen it, when Nell's dancing around in the house, grown up, not okay. child Nell, you, you'll see it a couple times, like both in the background and her looking into it. So that was just the lasser glass. He has a couple other little things. Hush, the mask is a mold of the canker man. Okay. Because they had a physical canker man when it, when it, I think when it grabs the mom or something, I don't remember. Yeah. And they took a mold of it and they just added like a nose and a mouth. Okay. Maddie's bathtub that she hides in front of the man drops into is the bathtub from before I wake at the end with the kid drowning. Oh, she walks in the, dark in the water. Okay. Yeah. Um, Gerald's game. Not only do you have the, the lasser glass frame as the headboard, but midnight mass is sitting on the yep. bookshelf. That's the book, which is Maddie's book from hush. That is right. And then hunting a hill house, like I said, has the lasser glass, but the blue butterfly is, Oh, it's like episode eight or something is actually in there too. The little blue oh, butterfly. Okay. Yeah. No shit. So, I mean, this guy fucking loves to scatter Easter eggs throughout it. People will contact him online and stuff to verify, and he'll, he'll reply back. It's pretty fucking neat. Yeah. The guy has obviously honed his craft of world building, character building, haunting imagery. His editing's off the chain. He has a lot of control in the cinematography. He's really honed his craft, I feel like. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to see where he goes from here. I agree with you on that, and he's... It's weird because you can't say he hasn't done much because in the amount of time yeah. he's done a lot, but he hasn't been around that long yeah. making movies. It's just crazy to think six movies and a show with another season of the show and another movie coming out this year is seven years. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's insane. And a couple other movies at least being talked about. Yes. So I still, like I've said before, I I, will, I would love to see him do a Go for the throat, old school, hard R horror flick. Right. Because um, he's so good at bringing in all these elements and only pushing them as far as they need to on the dirty yeah. side of things and, and doing the character thing. But uh, I'd like to see what that mind does. Right. Where if you make him strip away as much of the character as possible, but still be able to have the character. And it's interesting since he's got such good ties with Jason Baum and he can successfully make horror movies that are profitable off of very little money. Yeah. He can pretty much like the sky's the limit. He has an idea. I bet he can call Jason and get it made. Yeah. And when he's also got the relationship with Netflix where they can just throw projects at him and they've got the money and he's pretty well shown himself right. well enough to, he can just take the ball and run with it. Plus Blumhouse can make a movie with them. And then if they think that it's not going to do well in theaters, they can just still throw it on Netflix too. Yep. And I mean, as far as I can tell, it looks like he has free reign to make Stephen King movies as long as Steven's okay with it and he can get the funding. Yep. Which it would be interesting to see him like, yeah, I bet he could do a badass the stand actually, or a proper oh. dark tower. I bet he could do that, especially like an episodic dark tower. Yeah. Um, which I think they just announced Amazon's about to make that anyways, but I don't really? know who the fuck's making it. Um, now that shit on Amazon ain't that good to me, but it would be really cool to see him do other Stephen King stories that haven't been made yeah. into movies yet, whether they were shitty made for TV ones or not. But this was this was a fun episode for me. It was near and dear to my heart. Thanks for uh, <laughs> letting us do, Mike. You get to pick the next director. Woo-woo. But uh, next week, 
We've been saying it on the intro for so long. We're going to jump in and we're going to do fucking vampire movies. Children of the night. What music they make. Vampires aren't Josh's favorite, but uh, I think we'll have a good time doing it. There's a couple in there you like, right? I, I think I'll be able to pull together better material than I did on werewolves. Okay, okay. And uh, we're going to do two or three movies each. We'll just kind of have to look at it. It's going to be fucking fun. So tune in next Friday for that. Keep plugging the podcast. Keep sending comments to sbspodcast at gmail.com. Keep signing up for Twitter and Instagram. Those of you that haven't want to do it, keep coming back. Keep spreading the word. And thank you. I hope this still hurts.